Digital Gonzo episode 62, dated Monday the 19th of March 2012. The Harry Potter movie reviews, year 7, The Deathly Hallows part 2. for the climactic conflict of the Second Wizarding War is set for Hogwarts. Harry, Ron and Hermione are on a race against time to find and destroy the final Horcruxes, a journey that will draw our hero into death and beyond. As the posters trumpeted, it all ends. As we return for the final of eight podcasts. And like that battle, familiar faces square up bravely for the mammoth task of rounding off this epic series of podcasts, doing some justice to the saga and putting it to bed. Representing the wit-treasuring Ravenclaw, Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet and Leah Haydu of Gamerdork Rerolled. Go Ravenclaw! (laughs) (laughs) A remarkably honest and ambitious Slytherin returning for the first time since his Goblet of Fire show appearance is James Carter of Cane and Rince. Oh. A dependable, ethical, hard-working, do-not-call-them-boring Hufflepuff, rounding off the Horcrux trilogy, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits returns. Hey, our friends think we're cool. And my fellow brave Gryffindor, and the final Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher from the Last Save Loaded podcast, is Jake Del Toro, whose real name, believe it or not, is Graham Snape. Hello. As you said on Twitter, your granddad will not be pleased. <laughs> no, he won't.
this piece of music that plays is uh, on the soundtrack by Alexander Desplat. It's, it's called Lily's Song, and it plays repeatedly, usually in connection with Snape. Yeah, the opening scenes are, I think, fantastic. You covered the um, the end of the of part one, obviously, um, and and you were talking about the fact that they didn't need a cliffhanger to end it on because most of the people or a lot of the people who were watching the film knew the books, and so the cliffhanger wouldn't have given suspense. What they wanted was a climax, mm. and and they begin with that climax: Voldemort desecrating Dumbledore's grave, taking the wand, and and demonstrating its power. Um, and, and then, all without dialogue, they move on to show uh, Snape overlooking the school in, in the situation he now finds it. Um, and the sadness on his face is so palpable mm. for anyone who knows what he must be feeling or suspects what he must be feeling, uh, having read the books. And then moves on to bring you up to date with what Harry's doing, uh, which is sat at Dobby's grave deciding what he must do now he knows that the Hallows truly exist and and knows what he has to do to defeat to defeat Voldemort and all of that goes without any dialogue with the music playing and catches you up to exactly where you need to be to start this final lead into the story looking at it now I am astonished that people were actually complaining that this was going to be two films and not one uh, also did anyone see this in 3D dear god nope. no remember <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, the one and only true correct answer. <laughs> why, why would I ruin a wonderful experience like that? I was that? just going to say, I don't want to watch a Harry Potter film and then be sick. Shell Cottage, there's a little bit in the book where it goes into the notion of goblin ownership. The way that goblin ownership works is basically they view the item, they, they view the creator of the item as the, the true owner, and whoever's purchased or used the item after them, once they die they relinquish the rights to, to ownership of the item when it goes back to the original creator. They're effectively renting it. Yeah. So they loathe Godric Gryffindor because as far as they're concerned, he passed on an item that belongs to the goblins for a, nearly, a, well, over a thousand years, which disgusts them. So that's why Griphook wants to get it back. However, Warwick Davis plays Griphook really, really well. He makes him magnetic and interesting. It's complicated. I could have done with a lot more Griphook. And when he just sort of goes, yeah, I had my fingers crossed and runs out of the, <laughs> <laughs> runs out of the uh, vault, it's just kind of an, ah, uh, feeling. Yeah. And well, I can't believe we didn't mention John Hurt. In his, the first time he actually gets oh, to yeah. properly act since um, I w- thought I'd be seeing you sometime, Mr. Potter, from the first film. I've made a note here, I've never seen John Hurt perform badly, even in Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> He's brilliant! And I don't just want to start superlatives. He, he is frail and close to death at this point as Ollivander. And he's, you know, he's almost rambling. Uh, but at the same time, you can tell he knows his wands. And he was just the right person to cast. The look of fear on his face when Harry delivers the line, he has it, is brilliant. Yes. He just looks absolutely petrified and it's fantastic. I think this, and Sharon, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think this is more of what we needed in that first scene because oh, he's actually almost talking to the wands and he's definitely listening to them mm, absolutely so if, if there had been more of this and less of random pyrotechnics uh, yes. for the sake of being funny then and <laughs> this is kind of an aside but um, we, I mean we've talked a lot about the differences and how the films develop and everything mm-hmm. um, 
but it it reminded me I was talking to my mother who is still doing her first read through of the books and she's seen every film except for the last one and her comment to me was that she actually liked the earlier movies better and this is a direct quote because they weren't quite as serious as they get later on Uh huh. That was pretty much my response. But it's Molly Weasley. Yeah, she totally is. It's. Gringotts. Now, for me, and this was just reading the book the first time and then watching the film, Gringotts is the bit that lifts right out. It's one extra big action sequence too many to me. I, I, it, they just need to get one extra Horcrux. If he'd had six Horcruxes rather than seven, or however many there end up being, if he'd had one less, or they'd come by this earlier in the book and just found it in the Ministry or something, I... I don't know, it's, it's not that I don't like the Gringotts bit, but it's like, well, they've got to go to Gringotts, they've got to go to the Ministry, they've got to go to Hogwarts. It's like, just a few too many. I, I, I kind of agree, I kind of agree with that, but on the other hand, we get some amazing Helena Bonham Carter performance yes. of Emma Watson as Hermione, that's sort of out of it. Like, there have been a lot of Polly Jude performances, quote-unquote, like, in this, uh, in this series, but Helena Bonham Carter is the most successful of the lot by far. Yeah. I love this tiny little detail. I just love when they're walking in and she's tripping because she's not <laughs> yes. used to wearing the shoes. That I, I love this that. This crazy old witch lady be tripping. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Actually, on, no. on the subject of shoes, it's a bit of an aside, but at the very, very end, um, Bonnie Wright is wearing flats, and I strongly suspect that that is because she's not quite got into wearing heels yet and they didn't want her to fall on her backside on a train platform <laughs> no, but like, we've seen some like greater performances of char- actors getting to play the actors playing a certain character and you get to every now and then see a kind of a trace of like, oh I kind of recognize that bit that does sort of feel like them so I practically almost forget that it's not Emma Watson for certain little moments that just certain little gestures that mm, Honda Bonham Carter make mm. I, I love that bit so most of it's in the face, I think. When she stood at the counter, um, she she sort of has this way of holding her chin and and sort of not looking directly at them and blinking. And you just think, it's it is that not just Emma Watson in a wig? Yeah. <laughs> and her just her posture as she walks up the sandy beach up to up to uh, rump shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, slump shoulder. Then kind of the, like just looking down and kind of just the well sort of. <laughs> Sort of it's a really disconcerting it. moment because your brain is terrified of Bellatrix. So you're like, oh my god, Bellatrix is hit! Oh, oh it's Hermione. And uh, in the book, she's actually a lot better at being Bellatrix. And it's like, when I was watching, I was like, she's rubbish at Bellatrix. I can do a better Bellatrix than Hermione. And well, Hermione's meta! Well, it, uh, it helps, I think, that... And I, I know that we talked about this, but I don't remember whether we actually ever came to the conclusion. But very definitely in the book, it does state that you, if you're using Polyjuice Potion, you get their voice. Mm. Yeah. No, Which the in whole the films you don't. Thing. So, yeah. But I think that's a, it's, a, it's a neat cinematic uh, contrivance that allows us to remember who this person is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of I, I don't mind that change, and it's 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 funny in this case. Yeah. I, I wish to see my vault. 
Although, hang, having said that, I was saying they're, they're going to catch her on immediately, but then uh, I, I thought, well, the goblins are going to I've never heard her talk like that. She talks like different people all the time. There's like ten people in that brain. <laughs> it's not the character that you want to just question on a hunch. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other thing that I actually noticed about this, uh, the Gringotts scene, is that the dragon, uh, the emaciated, beaten-down, poor, crippled dragon, looks very much uh, like a greyhound. But Sharon's parents have this ancient old mangy greyhound dog that just basically when you look at it you're thinking how are you not keeling over and dying straight away the, the notion of these dogs that are bred for one purpose and as soon as they aren't racing anymore they are useless to their barbaric owners I loathe the notion of greyhound sports racing they're a breed that shouldn't exist we've seen what a Hungarian horntail looks like in four I think you even mentioned it James when we were um, uh, doing that podcast mm. and how you know proud and magnificent and fearsome that thing could be and how pathetic and white and emaciated this thing is I've got some yeah. co-workers who, were, who worked on that dragon Ooh. now Tell him yeah. well done. Well, I think there was a lot of work done in trying to convey the whiteness of it without making it look like it was glowing in a in a yeah. completely dark room. But uh, yeah, it's basically what ha- what's happening to this dragon is again going to Lord of the Rings. It's becoming Gollum. It's deprived of light, deprived of nourishment, deprived of you know any any sort of interaction with its own kind, and just it doesn't know how to behave or how to be. It only knows how to react to. The, the clangers that they use to, to control it. and It's only interacted with people who think yeah. that the only way to deal with it is to beat it. Yeah. It, it, it's a really great way of, of uh, you losing any sympathy you might have had for the goblins. You're like, these little buggers need to have their heads kicked in. And I like that they have that small little moment after it's broken out where it's out kind of in the free air again and it's just sitting there and you can just kind of feel this from it. Just this sort of a, almost like it forgot what this was like. Which is just like a really kind of sad little moment. Yeah. Where it, and it remembers have. that it's a dragon. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> okay, here's one thing that actually they did change for the uh, the films, and um, it's, it's quite significant actually. Hearing Horcruxes and feeling Horcruxes die. Harry can hear them because they make a... <laughs> sound, which didn't happen in the book. What does he say? He can just feel it, or he just knows where they are, or what? There's something really interesting here, because uh, end of Half-Blood Prince... Harry witnesses uh, Dumbledore being able to feel and sense magic, and he says it's unlike anything he's seen before. Mm. Um, and they've almost put a bit of that into the film, where Harry, although it's probably because of his link to Voldemort, mm. Harry starts to be able to feel the Horcruxes and, and know where they are instinctively. You know, he's in the Room of Requirement. He walks past the box that kind of like mining in Mass Effect too. Yeah, and, and he, <laughs> he's. He senses it's there and and goes over to the box. Although that again, that's different from how it is in in the book. Yeah, because um, that's to do with the fact that he remembered that he had actually touched the damn. He actually put the put tiara on, on top of a bust. Yeah, absolutely. Bus, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't in the books. I don't think that he has any kind of ability like that at all. Because, uh, like you said, he's actually handled the tiara. If he were going to feel it and you know have some kind of idea, then surely some kind of alarm bell would have gone off when he put this tiara on the, the bust and gone, you know, hey, look, there's a piece of Voldemort in here. Maybe you should pay attention. Yeah. But, same, um, same with writing in the diary as well. He probably would have sort of got a feel for it then as well if, yeah. if he'd have had some sort of ability. Right. Since, since the films don't have a lot of the talk about uh, Harry having past experience with many of them, I think this sort of works as a, it's just as being a Horcrux, his connection to Voldemort, everything else. Like, it, I don't question it when I'm watching it. 
and it and it makes a sort of sense. And without having that kind of like knowing their significance or having seen them in past films, I can't think of any better way for them to quickly get him to find them. Honestly, that line about him saying that uh, Voldemort's getting weaker and like a, uh, a, a more dangerous, like he's a wounded animal, is a really good line. I think that's totally from the film as well. And that's to do with the fact that in this, not in the book, but in this, Voldemort feels every Horcrux die, and it makes him panic, which is a great way of raising tension. To me, at least, both situations work. If he, if he doesn't feel it at all, it's, great, it's fantastic proof that this piece of his soul is totally divorced from him. It's like a, a lost limb that, of course, you can't feel somebody tickling the foot that you now no longer have attached to your body. It's, it's part of you that's no longer part of you anymore, and yet it's still somehow alive. And at the other way around, it's magic. So if, it, if, if they kill part of your soul that's attached to you in some strangled way, you would feel that absence. Does, in the books, is Voldemort aware at all of no. the... Okay. I think he's only aware... When, like He goes to look... At the, all the hiding places of his Horcruxes so um, he doesn't know that the uh, locket's died so when he finds the hiding place and there's no locket there he goes ballistic mm, okay. obviously they can't have him going to his place, the places where he's been hiding these things every time to mm. show his reaction but I like that this he, he him and Harry and every, immediately knowing it and the film showing us that they both know it I love that that yeah, like you said, it is a really quick shortcut way to like increase the tension. Like they both know what's happening. It's really driving up the. Uh, it's just yeah, driving up the uh, excitement of what's just as it builds. Also, it builds on something which is not present in the books at all. Oh, I, d- I didn't feel it. Which is pity. When Voldemort starts to really reel by the end of the in the final battle, when they destroy the diadem specifically, and he buckles and starts to sort of stare about himself as a, a creature who's bleeding to death, I, a tiny twinge of pity begins to grow in me for, yeah. at that point, which you wouldn't get if he was just like, oh, I haven't got the diadem yet. And it's in a great little way, too, where it's not like totally... A, they're not making him a sympathetic character. He's not pitiable. Mm. You, just, you are sensing like kind of a, like an animal who's been hurt and doesn't quite know what's happening like to it yes. and doesn't un- can't he can't comprehend what's kind of what he's experiencing but you know it was a great performance a continuing great performance by Ray Fiennes Voldemort's very much playing the the psychopathic role that, that you often see of, of terrorists in in films and, and media which is to lay the blame at the feet of the hero for not uh, stopping them and and you know almost Treating it as an inevitability that this is going to happen, and if the if the hero doesn't do what they can to stop it from happening, which is usually the demand of giving up, um, mm-hmm. then then the hero is is sort of tried, attempted to be used as a scapegoat for for not having done the right thing, even though obviously it's actually the uh, the 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 one who is creating the terror who's not done the right thing in the first place. That's also the acting actions of a terribly negligent and abusive parent. Now look what you made me do. Yeah. Dumbledore gave us a job to do. Did he now? Nice job. Easy. We've been hunting Horcruxes. And we think the last one's inside the castle, but we'll need your help getting in. Not a job my brother's given you. It's a suicide mission. Do yourself a favour, boy. Go home. Live a little longer. Dumbledore trusted me to see this through. What makes you think you can trust him? What makes you think you can believe anything my brother told you? You know the time you knew him. Did he ever mention my name? Did he ever mention hers? 
Why should he? Keep secrets, you tell me. I trusted him. That's a boy's answer. A boy who goes chasing horcruxes on the word of a man who wouldn't even tell him where to start. You're lying! Uh, Aberforth is a multifaceted character, and because of the diminished screen time he gets, he does get to say Albus was not the man you knew, but he also seems to come off mostly as a quitter. And for Harry to say, in, in the face of all reason, I'm still going to carry on. Even if I'm in possession of all the facts like you, I'm not going to let it stop me. I haven't given up. I got a strong sense, in the way it was acted out as well in the film, but in the book also, that he's almost testing Harry. Mm. He, he doesn't want to let Harry walk into... Hogwarts, which is almost certain death for Harry, mm. um, doesn't want him to even be in Hogsmeade at that point unless he knows that Harry believes in what he is doing. And it almost sounds like he's testing him. What are you doing? That's not a, a man's answer. That's a boy's answer. What are you really doing? You know. Mm. Um, and it reminded me very much of something that when I saw it about two weeks before the seventh book came out made me certain that um, Snape was going to turn out to be on the side of good and on Harry's side mm -hmm. which was in the fifth film the way Alan Rickman acts the scene where he is um, trying to teach Harry occlumency and, yeah. and he actually says to Harry at, at one point um, you know you don't have what it takes, Harry protests and, and the line is prove it and the way the way that Snape says prove it to Harry isn't someone taunting Harry it's a teacher trying to get the best out of him mm. it's yeah. it's trying to motivate. to appeal to him and motivate him exactly try <laughs> do or do not there is no try but but yeah it's, it, and and that scene very much put me in the mind of because the fifth film came out about a couple of weeks before the seventh yeah. book um, it, it very much appealed to me because at that point there was a lot of debate over whether Snape was good or bad still yeah even after Half-Blood Prince, and it, it appealed to my um, assertion that Snape was going to turn out to be good. And I got the same sort of sense from Aberforth, uh, especially seeing it on screen, that he was looking for that spark in Harry that would reignite his own belief in the cause and, and, uh, and make him sure that allowing Harry into to Hogwarts wasn't just him sending another person off to die. Okay, so when Neville turns up, you guys may or may not have noticed this, but in film five, when Harry uh, becomes the, uh, the effectively the, the real uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher at Hogwarts, teaching Dumbledore's army how to defend themselves, uh, he, unlike all the other kids, wears a cardigan. And for some reason, they thought this made him look more teacherly, more scholarly, and the notion that wearing a cardigan makes you, you know, the, the imparter of wisdom. Neville is now wearing the cardigan of wisdom. <laughs> he has become the de facto Harry in Harry's absence. Uh, but Neville, I mean, th we haven't really talked about Neville in the entire series. This is the time to really talk about Neville and how he's transformed as a character from, why is it always me, to the guy he ends up being. I love Neville. Yeah. Go yeah. Neville! Awesome. In, the, in the previous film, it's like, hey, losers, he's not here. <laughs> as little time as he gets, it's a great little moment. I do like the fact that um, Matthew Lewis actually grew up to be quite a um, quite an Im imposing, is that the word? He's, he's Striking. He's striking, yes. He's, he's 
actually quite attractive in his later years, which you never would have thought from this little, you know, plant pot carrying child. Well, they finally um, let him take the fat suit off. Well, yeah. yes, there is that. I, I don't. <laughs> not a lot of people know, know that, but he was—he was not that fat, really. For no, I, I don't quite know if I agree with Joe's comment that he grew up to be a rock god, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he did pretty well. Oh, I mean, come on—you could—you could just totally see him standing on a pile of Death Eater bodies with the sword and the head of Hell's the snake. Like a Frank Fanzetta yes. painting. Yeah. <laughs> I want to Frank see that painting. blowing in the wind behind him. <laughs> Head of the snake, and then Luna just sort of draping herself sideways over him. Internet fan artists, that is, it is important it. that you get I to want, work on that. I want somebody to do that. Who do we know we can commission to do that as the uh, cover art for this podcast? That, I mean, it's just dying to be emblazoned on the side of a van. Or indeed, a tattoo. <laughs> I'll contact my artist immediately. Okay. Uh, anything more on Neville Longbottom? Yeah, his, just... his gran turns up at the fight of Hogwarts in the uh, the um, book, doesn't it, she? Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's a real shame that we missed out on the scene in uh, in Order of the Phoenix, him in the hospital, because that's the point yeah. at which everyone else is forced to to. Um, realise what Harry has known for a little while, which is Neville is possibly one of the few people in, in these books who has had a worse lot in life than Harry. Um, yeah. He has had an awful time. And to say that he was so nearly the chosen one, uh, but still in the end played a massive role in mm. bringing down Voldemort. Um, and just quickly to say, uh, Neville and Luna is as fabricated as Harry and Hermione is. It's in the films that's played way more than it is in the books. Yeah. And it was oh, very no, much she, a fan he, thing. They marry completely different people, Joe. Uh, has, oh, has yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That doesn't happen in the uh, the books at all. Yeah. But yeah, I think they, they kind of wanted to go, who does Level, Neville hang out with? I, I guess it's Luna. And yes. The other thing is that they do share a bond in the fact that the DA was huge for them. They got to, to really be part of something, so they have that in common. It's specifically mentioned um, at the end of... Um, is it Order of the Phoenix or is it Half Blood Prince? That those are the only two who actually respond when they put the call out on the the coins because those are the two that hung on to them because it meant yeah. so much to them. <laughs> coins got left out of the movies entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So then they're in Hogwarts and elegantly pare down the various amounts of this is what we have to do to an entire room full of people. Then going up and going down and to the Ravenclaw room and then back down again and then assembly and then um, the the. Because Snape calls an assembly in the middle of the night, you get to see him do something he doesn't do in the book, which is to say... Many of you are surely wondering why I have summoned you at this hour. It's come to my attention that earlier this evening, Harry Potter was sighted in Hogsmeade. Now, should anyone, student or staff, attempt to aid Mr. Potter, they will be punished in a manner consistent with the severity of their transgression. Furthermore, any person found to have knowledge of these events who fails to come forward will be treated as equally Guilty. And if you know his allegiance, which most of the audience did, it's, it is exceptionally emotionally taught to see Snape 
demanding that people ha- turn over Harry, praying that they don't. It, it's it's a it's a really great way of showing the role that he has had to take for years now. He is has had to hide, in Dumbledore's own words, the best of him. But fortunately, you do get to have McGonagall standing between Harry and him. That part where they square off in the corridor in the book, it d- does still remain there. And then Snape, uh, no one notices. You notice this yesterday, Sharon. Snape doesn't send a single offensive spell her way. He just blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. Does he deflect the attacks into the caros like he does in the film? Oh, no, that was good, yeah. He actually I ends up that. disposing of the caros that way. I didn't even no, know that's just... how it happened, but yeah, they get laid out. That's exceptional wand work. <laughs> Um, uh, fans of the British version of The Office will notice that there is an out-of-focus character in these last two movies. Uh, Amicus Caro, the, the male of the two twins, is Finchie from The Office. Yeah. So yeah, then they make the preparations for battle. And then there's a piece of music in this which uh, gets repeated during the Courtyard Apocalypse. It's almost like Hogwarts has been waiting to show its true colours. And it's this wonderful, rousing moment. And that's when the Return of the King vibe starts to really set in. And it's a lot more visually arresting than how it's described in the book. There are some things that the uh, the film does very, very well, and this is one of them. All of the charms converging into one giant dome-like shield that has to be bust through before they can actually gain entrance to Hogwarts. The notion that all of these forces are assembling and standing and waiting. That notion of, of waiting for the armies to clash is really held on screen. One thing that someone uh, has mentioned they really don't like is that Percy, it's denied his one moment of being able to come back. He busts through into the room of requirement and says that he's just heard and that he had to sneak out of the ministry and he's there to defend his family. And it's a wonderful touching moment because he has been, well, a total ass for the entire series and has actually ended up pretty much disowning his family and becoming a ministry pawn. So his coming back to Hogwarts is significant. Now, fortunately, he is there. He's definitely at the battle. He's uh, there, and I, I throughout the the films, though, the the thread of Percy not being with his family, and in fact being very much against his family and what they stand for at that point, it's they don't really make as big a deal of it at all yeah. as they do in the books. So him showing back up, it would have been nice to see it, but it wouldn't have <laughs> made as much sense as I'm here. Sorry, I'm so late. Who's that guy? <laughs> oh, he's one of the many, many Weasleys. Is he Red Charles? Red hair, second-hand <laughs> Yeah, so, so Percy does get to come back and do yeah. his thing. It's, it's actually surprising how many people they got to come back for all of this stuff. Yeah, but again, one of Crab and Goyle is missing, and you're going to have to try and tell me which one's which, because in the it's films I've no idea. Goyle it's a different that. guy again. It's not even Shaved Ape Kid. <laughs> they couldn't uh, even get Shaved Ape. It's Blaze. It's Blaze from yeah, from the train um, in the sixth film. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and also you, you from Slug, Slughorn Slug Club in the books. In the book, they go into it even more, and I think they mention it in the film, but uh, about how uh, part of the defense against the dark arts, which is now just the dark arts. Uh, part of that is punishing with curses students mm. who have been assigned detentions and everything, and um, you find out about how Crab and Goyle are really into that, and, you know, some people will, ref- like Neville, you know, refuse to do it. Just death eaters just waiting to happen. Like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, they, I think C- Crab does say something like, we're going to be rewarded, we're going to kill Harry mm-hmm. Potter, not kill Harry Potter, but we're going to bring the Dark Lord out. But he's, he's not even... Uh, it shows the difference between him and Malfoy, especially in the film. Harry actually asks Malfoy, "Why didn't you say it was me?" And that's not in the book. Does he say it in the book? No. no, no, because it's it's huge. Because Malfoy's looking him in the eye in the film, and Malfoy 
hesitates, and that's when you know that there is something in Malfoy worth saving, and that he actually... I mean, if you didn't know already from film six, this genuine sense that he is this poor kid who has had a terrible upbringing, and has, has been... not financially, he's had everything he could possibly wish for, but in, emotionally, he has had a terrible upbringing. I can only hope that his mother kept him away from his father in that life after that, and um, you know, maybe you know, pointed him as he entered manhood in, towards something a little bit more honourable. Because he's a pitiable character, truly, and Crab and Goyle are separate, because they specifically Crab, a Psychotic, closer to, to Voldemort, or at least his, um, you know, his knuckle-dragging hate that the nastier Death Eaters. Yeah, but um, in the books, you could almost be forgiven for for thinking that Draco actually didn't recognise Harry yeah. um, in, in the Malfoy house. Although Harry does make the comment that he doesn't think Draco was going to kill Dumbledore, so mm. you start to get a sense that Draco really is put upon. But in the films, they make a lot more of it, and I think yeah. to better effect. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. There, there is a mention that Harry gets, begins to feel a grain of pity for uh, yeah. Draco, but at the end, Draco gives him a curt nod, whereas in the film, it's almost like, it's not necessarily like they're looking directly at each other, but there could have been a little look that passes between them at that point. Yeah. You see Draco, and he appears to be looking sort of in their direction. I'm fairly certain that uh, he's aware of them. They're probably not on Christmas card terms. It brings the question in the films, unfortunately, into, into effect, which is, why does Draco go in there after Harry? If he's already at the point where he's not sure of this, because it's not just he goes after him, he actually uh, comes into the castle, grabs um, Goyle and, Goyle and, uh, uh, and Blaze. Blaze, and drags them in, says, come here, you two, like he's got a purpose, and it seems yeah. to be that he wants his wand back, but... That's hardly a reason to get involved in what Harry's up to, you would think. He's a conflicted character, much like Snape. And at that point, he's, he's panicking, doesn't know what to do. He pursues Potter and continues with the plan, which he's been hammered into him his entire teenage life. It just takes him to look at Potter and be stared down and told, why did you act in a way that is contrary to this, for him to remember that he actually does have a conscience, that he is actually, somewhere deep down, a good person. Which works it's just very deep. Yeah, and that works very well with what we've seen at the end of Half-Blood Prince, where Draco is carrying out this plan even though he doesn't want to, and even in the face of Dumbledore telling him he doesn't need to, persists in saying that he has to. And then at the end of uh, this film, um, obviously Draco is, is stood there amongst his friends from Hogwarts and looks very conflicted when his parents are you know, asking him to come across and and I guess we'll get onto that in a bit, you know, come across to Voldemort's side. Uh, it looks like he very much doesn't want to, and it's only when his mum pleads with him to, to do that that he actually does. So. Um, there's one part which we didn't talk about which leads up to the room of hidden things the grey lady which I think was I personally think was done to incredible effect in the film whereas it's, it's a nice bit in the book it's, it's, it's actually to use the parlance, haunting in the film Kelly MacDonald, who plays her, you may recognise her from Train Spotting, and um, I think she was in Gosford Park. She's the first Hogwarts ghost to genuinely behave like a ghost, and uh, it, she's a shade. She is the the memory of regret and emotion. It's also the polar opposite of the book in terms of what Harry has to find out. In the book, he knows where it is. He just needs to find out that it is definitely a Hawk. No, it's definitely a Horcrux that Tom knew about it and that it was hidden in the hollow tree in Albania and all that stuff. They didn't even bother going into that at all. Harry has to ask her where the diadem is. 
and she goes from being kind of oh I did you know many people have asked me about it and uh, there was this one boy and, and Harry's like oh okay and then she sort of goes off and kind of a, mm, what a nice boy you want to destroy it? another swore to destroy it many years ago a strange boy with a strange name Tom Riddle but he lied he's lied to many people I know what he's done I know who he is he defiled it with dark opposite of what Joe was going for at that point but it works so well this is also the uh, bit where uh, at the end of the room of requirement moment uh, Ron shouts after Goyle or whoever was trying to aim killing curses at Hermione that's my girlfriend you numpty <laughs> not in the book can't even blame Joe on that one don't know where that came from no. but uh, Ron actually gets to say to Draco that was my girlfriend, you two-faced bastard, and punch him in the face. In the book! Where was that? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, numpty, somehow. But just bizarre in choice in the film. Absolutely like a thief bizarre. in the night. Um, and we've, we've forgotten, of course, about the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, Ron and Hermione go there. They're not in the book. In, in, in the book, they get to Hogwarts, Ron and Hermione disappear, and are never really heard of again. They're, they're there. We know they're there. They... Do, they do bring back Basilisk Fangs and say where they've been. And then they yeah, it's just, it's all completely off screen, if you like, yeah. in the book. Um, but uh, because we've been with one and uh, uh, Hermione for so many films, they have to give them something to do. They have to stay with them. So um, rather than Ron mentioning house elves and that being what gets Hermione hot under the colour, because um, Ron's particularly compassionate moment of, of saying, we've got to get the house elves out, that we don't want them to get killed like Dobby. That inflames her ardour, but uh, in the chamber, it's just the the, the stress of um, uh, destroying a Horcrux and then nearly dying that gets them to kiss, like brother and sister, I might add. But, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think it's okay just because a because it is a little awkward because it's Ron and Hermione and mm. they've been putting this aside and kind of denying it for an awfully long time now, and second of all because I mean they're. They're kids, you know? They don't have a whole lot of experience in this kind of thing. It's described in the book as kissing so passionately that Ron lifted Hermione off her feet. It's the kiss that, um, I would imagine, teenage girls dream of. Uh, and I'd imagine as well, teenage boys dream of that too. Being one myself. I'm in an awkward area here. There's more, <laughs> <laughs> there's more going on during the dance to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds that wasn't in the books at all than there is in the kiss that should have so much more going on yes yeah and that's why and there's an awkwardness there when they go into the chamber when Ron turns and says um, Harry talks in his sleep sometimes have you noticed and Hermione has this awkward no of course I haven't you know like she's trying to hide something and again it's just not in the books and Joe has gone to pains and to real lengths to say Harry Hermione is just not a viable relationship. It's not there. It's yeah. brother and sister. It's best friends, but there is no romance there. And in the in the films, they they really uh, left that to one side and 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 took it in the direction that it just wasn't in the book at all. Yeah. Uh, Harry actually says in the book, "She's like my sister." Mm-hmm. I think when Ron comes back, just yeah. to explain it. To yeah. I I think part of the problem, though, and I'm going to sound really really cruel when I say this, but it's true. Daniel Radcliffe is very fanciable. <laughs> Rupert Grint is not. You heartless wench! <laughs> I'm sorry. Just there. <laughs> there was no need to kick a man when he's down. <laughs> 
why go to Bondi Beach when you go to Bridlington? Well, Grint, there's about 10,000 reasons, <laughs> and they're all degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, when uh, Harry, uh, Harry grabs Ginny, she becomes Han Solo. She just goes, I know. According to some press reports, yeah. you have 570 million pounds. Mm-hmm. Is those, this true? Those reports are bollocks. How much do you have? Loads, but I'm not telling you how much. But it's definitely not 570. Why really? won't you tell me? Because I think it's private. <laughs> but you have lots of millions of pounds. Yeah, I do. I become very angry when it comes to issues concerning social deprivation and social exclusion. And I become most irritated and angry by people who have really no idea how it feels to exist in poverty and how disadvantage cast an sometimes irreparable blight over people's lives. And I'm aggravated to real fury <laughs> by the fact that, that there is a section of our society that can't join the dots and doesn't see how issues that affect even them, their safe lives, such as crime and drugs, things that touch the middle classes, have their roots often in, in terrible injustice. Um, and it's amazing how people can't and don't care enough to uh, try and redress some of those issues. Those things make me very angry. So yeah, the battle continues. There is a very specific moment that diverges in the book where Voldemort, on realising that various uh, Hogwarts have all been destroyed apart from um, Nagini, encases his snake in a bubble, and they definitely decide not to do that for a very good reason in the film. Now, I'm just on the spot thinking about it. I think it's because it makes Nagini less dangerous. Because if Nagini's in a bubble, the notion that it can strike out and kill you at any moment is dispensed with. And yet, in the book, Snape actually gets encased in the bubble and Nagini kills him from within. Yeah. Which I thought, should be more creepy. I thought the reason that they probably went for that is because if you're encasing the snake in a bubble, doesn't it make the snake an automatic target? Yeah. Like, hey, look Don't at this thing that I'm protecting. That. Please it's do like not kill of- the snake. <laughs> like an end of level boss he might as well have put an orange glowing flashing button on the snake's back and a red yeah. barrel does next she to have it? a yellow <laughs> exclamation mark over her head <laughs> also could risk looking very silly yes um yeah it could actually the animation specialist speaks the truth i think that's why isn't it it would have looked very daft yeah, and also if it's like, you know what, this is actually a really good idea, keep, keep Nagini encased in a solid bubble, that, that means that when Harry comes to see him, he doesn't take a pot shot at Nagini just as a last-ditch attempt to kill the last Horcrux, because Nagini doesn't need to be killed by special magical means, she's um, a, a living creature and can be killed, simple as that. And Harry did consider it, but there was the, the bubble, and so he, he didn't go for his wands because he didn't want to mess the whole thing up. But... Um, that then doesn't explain why Voldemort just drapes her over his shoulders and wanders back in front of a whole bunch of people who are, you know, aiming their wands to kill. Well, Harry does take a shot at her, and it reflects, and it just bounces off her and hits some Death Eaters behind. Like, when after uh, his whole, like, oh, hey, I'm not dead, like, like uh, gets up and runs to the other side, he takes a, oh, yes, takes a yes. quick shot at the guinea and it bounces off. 
So I yeah. think yeah, it's I just kind of like it's, she's protected, just not in a goofy looking bubble. So where every scene where that Voldemort is in it, there's something scary and tense going on. But in the background, there's a snake just hovering in a bubble. <laughs> Silly. So. Also, yeah, the, I think I think she she's definitely going to have as much magical protection as he can put on her, mm. and yeah. maybe maybe has some inherent just because she is you know has part of his soul like by the same token by the same token that uh harry is partially protected because of the part of his soul that is uh that is voldemort's maybe she's got something uh, yeah (laughs) it's just not the big glowing bubble floating behind him all the time exactly the the presence of that spell as well i i think it might beg the question that if if tom is so terrified of death why does he not just live in one of those bubbles all the time they can't get me here well, maybe maybe not kill everyone, and they won't want to get you, Tom. Shortly after this follows the courtyard apocalypse scene uh, with that wonderful piece of music reprising, and it's it's a battle scene. We've seen battles uh, here and there all over the place. Uh, only this is a battle where grown adults are fighting and killing children, and it's rare. That doesn't happen, really. It's usually soldiers fighting soldiers, soldiers fighting mythical creatures, grown men. But Lavender Brown dies. Fred dies. Does Lavender specifically die in the book? I don't remember seeing it. Um, She does, yeah. Um, I was was just thinking, I'm certain that I can. It mentions that she's feebly stirring, but it doesn't mention she definitely dies in the book. However, the official timeline, Joe, has said that, yes, she died from her wounds, which is terrible. The way it's it's phrased, it's it's pretty obvious that this is just her last... Right, right. um, You know... Uh, and oh, she's just one person, but I think something like 50 students died in that actual... 50 students and uh, members of the Order of the Phoenix died in that particular uh, battle. And it's, it's, it's a genuine tragedy, and you feel that. It, it feels like w- whenever they try to evoke that rousing sense of World War II, this music is somewhat resplendent of that. The notion that there are children fighting here is never more apparent than, than in, in the little deaths you see. I was watching an interview, it was, it's a, an extra on the, the part two Blu-ray or DVD where Daniel Radcliffe interviews Joe Rowling and she was saying that the reason she 
killed off Tonks and Lupin was to show that one of the true horrors of war is that children are left as orphans yeah. as a result of it and that is what was sort of underplayed for me and it's it's a shame they couldn't really get that across in the film in the books it, we don't actually see their death do we no they, they are no. there when Harry comes uh, as in the film when Harry comes back into yeah. it's a sudden a, surprise a medical area yeah um, so I, I think what they possibly did is um, rather than focus on the fact that there are children dying which does actually arguably threaten the rating of the film if you're seeing kids actually just being killed left right and centre by yeah. um, death eaters um, I agree that it loses some of the impact but what, I think what they did instead was show the destruction of Hogwarts because even more so than in the book that castle is a wreck by the end of this, these yeah, scenes rubble. there's just rubble everywhere and walls and ceilings and everything just gone um, so I think what they do is shift the focus onto Hogwarts being attacked um, and the, the students and the teachers are just part of Hogwarts yeah. and, and Harry sees the, the bodies when he goes into the, the um the hall, but during the battles what we're seeing is Hogwarts being dismantled by this force that is attacking it. I think it's brilliant that Hogwarts, well, in a way it's brilliant that Hogwarts gets destroyed like it does because that's sort of Harry's anchor to the magical world, isn't it? And once that's destroyed, it's sort of, a, it's significant and it sort of signifies him moving on from the place and, and uh, it, it not being a part of his life anymore. Also, they can't even just go tidy up, tidy up us, because it's dark <laughs> magic that's done the destroying. Um, yeah. Silly as that sounds, uh, it's a loophole that means they are going to have to rebuild by hand. They're going to have to earn that second uh, start on Hogwarts. There's a shot that comes uh, a little bit later when uh, when uh, Voldemort gives kind of his in everybody's head speech of like I'm ordering my forces to pull back, turn in Harry. That sort of thing. That um, where one of the Death Eaters kind of has Fred or George. I'm not sure which kind of cornered a little bit and like that shot it's George it's George okay alright thank you well that shot gets that kind of like these that sort of feeling of characters we're familiar with are in a really bad situation and they're not like being killed on screen or anything and like it's in a big bloody awful mm. battle that drives this up to an R but just out of it's like depth. these are yeah this is like this is just really scary horrifying battle with like kids who we know and are familiar with and have seen growing up are having to fight and are really outmatched like yeah. that sort of that shot gets that feeling, and I wish that there was a little bit more of that in the shots of the actual battle in the courtyard, rather than just mass chaos and huge trolls swinging things. Uh, it's not completely ineffective by any means. It's still it's still like it's still good. I just wished for a little bit more of that sense. I think yeah. a lot of the emotional impact though comes from um, the aftermath and the fact yeah. that um, yeah. you you may not see children getting children getting killed, but you certainly see that children are dead and as as harry's walking through the hall and you've got um you know just the, the little moments that he's catching out of the corner of his eye the fact that the weasley family has been torn apart the fact that um you know there's tonks and lupin and that's that's their family almost wiped out trelawney and um one of the students um pulling a blanket over somebody who's who's died by sh i think by showing that that you get the emotional punch of it where there's there's a moment in the book where and it's the, the point where fred gets killed which in the book you actually see it happen um mm -hmm. and harry is thinking to himself why has everything not stopped fred is dead and and he he wants everything to just shut up so that he can grieve 
and it doesn't work like that because there's a battle going on and I think if you did if you did see the deaths within the battle you actually wouldn't have the the impact because there's too much happening and too much going on and they would either have to stop for each death and allow it to sink in which would completely lose the um uh, the flow of the fight or you wait to the end and then you do your grieving when you can actually see what has had to be laid out um and i think the the way that they do put it together actually works really well it's not so much about us grieving for the characters as the characters families and friends and then us grieving for the families pitying the living not the dead Lucius Malfoy, uh, in the book it's implied that he wants um, Voldemort to go to the castle at, so that his ulterior motive to be able to search for Draco, same as his wife, um, can be fulfilled. In the book he, he talks about the fact that um, he thinks Voldemort should go and find Harry because yeah. he doesn't want to, he thinks Voldemort shouldn't want to risk any of his Death Eaters killing Harry. Yeah. And, and that the Voldemort, if he wants to be the one to do it, needs to go to the castle. And that's his pretense for him and his wife wanting to get into the castle to mm. find Draco. Um, in the film, I can't exactly remember how he puts it, but yeah, there's a very different tone to it. I know. Might it be less... Uh, might it not be more prudent to call off this attack? Simply seek the boy yourself. I do not need to seek the boy. Before the night is out, he will come to me. Do you understand? How can you live with yourself, Lucius? I don't know. Go and find Severus. Bring him to me. It's the only moment that the two of them are totally truthful with one another. They've been slithering around and just putting on a show. Both of them are guilty of putting on a show of force for everybody else's benefit. But at this point, Voldemort calls Lucius a coward because the cowardice that is reflective of Voldemort's own disgusts him. It's, it's an honest moment and uncharacteristic for both of them and thus fantastic. I was just going to quickly say we'll come to later on the fact that after this point neither one of them is honest you know in, in the little bit we see of, of each of them from now on mm. they're completely putting on a show from this moment on and this is the one time you're absolutely right where they are being absolutely honest and, and truthful with what the way they feel about one another but rather than saying we're both scared you know that there's a lot riding on this we could both die tonight and rather than being compatriots there's nothing but loathing between the two of them mm. It's the essential difference between Death Eaters and, as they're described in the book, just once, Hogwartians. <laughs> so then bringing in our favourite Hogwartian, Severus Snape, the, uh, according to Voldemort, because as he kills him, he is the most loyal of his Death Eaters. That this loyalty that he's been desperately seeking for all these years is, is you know, resplendent in Severus Snape, who would kill Dumbledore for him. And uh, ultimately, when it comes down to it, he's just another tool in his plan. I don't know if he's sad to see him go. It's a regrettable loss. He's uh, not in the book. He's very cold about it. But he's, he's kind of, well, it's going to happen, so there we go. I, I, the way that he does it in the film is so brutal. He, he appears to use a wordless version of Sectrum Sempra on his neck, which is, in the, in the, in the book, he encases him in, in Nagini's bubble, and Nagini just bites him once, and that's it. In the film, 
the brutality of the being struck in the face and neck again and again and again is it's anguish it's the same style of attack as the black mamba that goes after bud in um, Kill Bill Part 2 never expected that comparison but yes it is that's why I goddamn hate snakes it would seem that if he truly had any regret about it he could have just Avada Kedavra'd him yeah you know, but that's it killed him with exceptional amounts of extra pain, yeah. And plus it wouldn't have given him the opportunity to lie there dying and, you know, at least you, at least I got to see you one last time, basically. He does say that, kind of. He says, look at me. But that's, that's what he means. Um, yeah, if he had a Vargadavid, it would be useless to Harry. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, it's a narrative contravicus again. Yeah, I, I was know. trying to work out if there's a reason for that because I think Voldemort's attitude to Snape's loyalty is very mechanical. There's no real feeling behind it at all. He just says he's loyal because he thinks that all the signs are there that he has been loyal. Voldemort doesn't feel that really. Yeah. He, he, and, and, it, and he doesn't feel it because it's not there. Snape's not Give really loyal to the opportunity to, to betray me over and over again. You haven't taken it. Therefore, my mathematical conclusion is yeah. you were loyal. Bye. But this is, this is the thing about Tom and his, his emotional barometer is... Well, <laughs> Less than wrong. It's, it's broken. His, his emotional barometer is busted beyond belief or just never existed in the first place. He's desperate for, um, for loyalty and for devotion. And really what he's desperate for is love, although he would never recognise that or admit that to himself. But if he has it, and there are a couple of examples where he does, um, Bellatrix, we've, we've talked about this before, she would lay down her life for him. She obviously, in the closest she can come to it, loves him. And he scorns that repeatedly. And she still keeps coming back. Now, that's got to be loyalty of some degree of the type that he's seeking that isn't just inspired by fear, and yet he rejects it. And, and what Snape's behaviour would seem to indicate is that there is this very, very deep loyalty that he's kept um, and, and sustained despite, you know, things happening to, to Lily, which, um, you know, he, he obviously knew Snape had said he loved her, although he, he um, disregards that. Um, but, but in spite of that, Snape has by his actions, remained loyal, and yet he, he doesn't feel anything about that either. And if he had subjugated the entire wizarding world, and possibly even the entire muggle world as well, and had every single individual on the planet kneeling down in supplication, worshipping him, that would still not be enough for Tom, because the, the, the thing which would allow him to feel that is broken. Joe Rowling has actually said that if Tom Riddle was locked in a room with a psychiatrist, he would be found to be psychopathic fairly swiftly. Uh, Except if that, that he would eat the psychiatrist. Well, no, that's the thing. He would have to be locked in a room and utterly bound and, and, and forced to actually... Veretta serum to, uh, to actually speak the truth. It wouldn't take long at all. He's, he's the kind of psychopathic that they put them in those rooms in Silence of the Lambs and never let them out. You have performed extraordinary magic with this wand, my lord, in the last few hours alone. No. No. I am extraordinary, but the wand resists me. There is no wand more powerful. Ollivander himself has said it. 
it answers to you and you only. Does it? My Lord. The one, does it truly answer to me? You're a clever man, Severus. Surely you must know. Where does its true loyalty lie? With you. Of course, my lord. The Elder Wand cannot serve me properly because I am not its true master. The Elder Wand belongs to the wizard who killed its last owner. You killed Dumbledore, Sephiroth. While you live, the Elder Wand cannot truly be mine. You've been a good and faithful servant, Severus. But only I can live forever. My lord. Nagini. The 6th, 7th and 8th films, all, unlike the books, don't hide their hand about Snape's emotional turmoil so much. They, they don't have any long scenes where Snape soliloquizes about what he's having to go through, but in 6th, 7th and 8th, uh, the, the readership audience knew that, um, where Snape's loyalties actually lay. And so they could relax a little bit because they didn't have to keep it secret and that and the, they, the filmmakers, knew as well. When this scene happens in the book, you're still kind of not sure where, where Snape is. In the film, it's so sad. It is a genuine tragedy and it is played out uh, as something that, because he has thrown his lot in with these people and did so a long, long time ago, this was a, the end of the road that Snape was eventually going to get to. And, and so when he dies, and he dies in extreme pain, do you feel it in a way that, as you're reading it in the book, it doesn't quite affect you in that same way until you've read it the second time, and then you see how she's slightly divorced it from Snape's feelings? I think part of that is that in the book, Harry doesn't know how to feel about it. Yeah. And in the film, I think you do get a little bit more of, um, although he still doesn't know... Snape's motivations and he certainly still doesn't know the whole story behind it yet he does understand that this is somebody else who has died because of him and at the very least he is um, he feels that loss and he he believes that um, on some level Snape tried to do some things that helped him and, the, and he feels the loss of that but in the book there is sort of a slight coldness and a slight detachment about it because he, he is kind of well, what were you? You're dead, you know. Now, now you're gone. But what were you to me? I, I still haven't quite figured that out yet. Yeah. Um, and he, of course, says, "Look at me," so that he can look into uh, Harry's eyes, which are identical to Lily's. So um, that Lily's eyes will be the last thing he sees before he dies. 
and then it's a lot more subtle in the book. It's it's literally just look at me and that's it. But in the film, obviously, it's look at me. You have your mother's you arms. Is, yeah, he actually straight out. Which is a, which is too much, really. It doesn't need to be said. Why would he need to say it? But also, eagle-eyed viewers, wait, you know, watching just two minutes later, seeing a young Lily uh, Evans, would say. No, he doesn't. Young Lily <laughs> Evans has brown eyes. Daniel Radcliffe has blue eyes. And of course, they should both be green. But yeah. So interesting reason why the green eyes didn't happen, though. Um, Daniel Radcliffe can't wear contact lenses. Yeah, he's one of the few people in the world who suffer from um, exploding eye syndrome. <laughs> but a contact lens in your eye, you become a wimp immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I suffer from the same thing, Dan. So uh, you and me. But presumably they could have got the actresses playing young and old Lily to put in blue contact lenses. Yes. Yes. Thereby still making the connection. Um, Or, and I'm going to be daring here, hired an actress with blue eyes. Or just digitally altered it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, the digital altering thing, especially, I mean, they could release a special edition of this where they've done that already. It takes, like, it'd take about an hour. Are you really? George well, Lucasing this series already? <laughs> it's, it's just that bit. It's a correction. <laughs> it's reasonable to say they couldn't digitally alter Daniel Radcliffe's eyes for all of the films to make them green, but yes, they could certainly have They don't have to be green, but they do have to make the, the, the brief moments where Geraldine Somerville turns up. They have to her eyes never struck me as particularly um, at odds with uh, Radcliffe's. Mm. Also, she's so often discoloured because of the flashback nature mm. that it's difficult to really get a bead on them. Yeah. Or she's yeah. a ghost, or she's got her eyes closed. Or... Uh, the way they handle the prince's tale in the film over the book, for some reason when I read the book I was like, didn't I already know this? But then when you, when you read more, you're like, no, they, she's never alluded to this at all. And it, make, it makes perfect sense, and it's a wonderful kind of unravelling of something that you just took for granted for so long. Having Severus be the first on the scene and discovering the bodies of James and, most notably, Lily, is uh, adding that to the uh, flashbacks, which wasn't in the book at all, is a masterstroke and um, provides a really fantastic visual core to explain to the audience what has to be explained in paragraph after paragraph after page of how much he genuinely cares about this woman. One thing that struck me, though, is that he he goes there and uh, collapses over Lily's body, but then does he take Harry with him, or does he just leave the baby there, struggling on itself? There's there's two things here. First of all, he must have walked past James's body and presumably felt nothing, which speaks a little bit to him. But, um, But he... So he sees Lily's body, and in the books, there was actually, for a long while, a lot of discussion about the series of events that happens from the moment Voldemort shows up at, mm. um, at Godric's Hollow. Was there someone else in the room? Was there, yeah, well, thing, well there's someone else in the room, but there was also questions over um, what actually happens after that, because what should have probably happened had... had Joel written it from sort of scratch, knowing how it was all going to pan out, mm. was that there shouldn't have been a day there when, before Harry turned up at his, his aunt and uncle's And house. I came across that when doing the timeline. What There's the a heck lot was of happening to Harry, and baby Joel had Harry, to, yeah, for a day? Exactly, because Hagrid or shows Hagrid up with him on the bike, having said that he, he had to take a detour around 
Bristol or some, something. So he well, talks about the four hours after the exactly. event that she knew was was it happened the day before. Yeah. yeah, and we've already seen that the entire magical world has been celebrating the downfall of the Dark Lord. So it can't yeah. even be that it was just a few hours later in the night. That I'm, that pitching, I'm pitching auras picking over the house and going, well, some sort of dark wizard was here. We can't, we can't find a one, but there was a big explosion. And all of these enchantments that were connected with Voldemort seem to have lifted. So we surmise that Voldemort is dead. And, and then Harry the in the corner, <laughs> screaming his head off, and then going, silencio. I, I think, I think the, the supposition is <laughs> that... mute baby screaming. <laughs> I think the supposition is supposed to be that Dumbledore got Harry out of there quickly... Yeah. Um, and then started making arrangements while he left them with Hagrid, and Hagrid was told to bring him later on or something. But it was a really and big hole for a long while. Hagrid put him on top of a giant spider for safekeeping. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In a box full of bow truckles. So, yeah, Joe had to do a bit of writing around that, because by the time um, the event started coming out in books five, six, seven... Um, she, obviously, book one had already laid down a certain amount of the series of events there. So, right. so S- Snape, along with the Aurors and um, Pettigrew, went to the house and ignored Harry and came away, presumably. Yeah, Snape, uh, Snape came to the house and then came back again and then sat in Dumbledore's office crying. And then Dumbledore says he has his mother's eyes, and like, well, which implies that Snape didn't really look at Harry because he couldn't. He would be a living embodiment and a reminder that he was not the chosen one, that James was the one who ended up with mm-hmm. Lily, and that that got them killed. I think they were, they were quite careful in the way they they picked what they needed to pick to make yeah. it seem like a patchwork of all the various memories that must have been swirling through Snape's mind at the end. Because mm-hmm. this, is, this is a memory, or strand of memories, he put together mm-hmm. as he was dying, and it's just all... What, I think what it's supposed to be is the key scenes are the ones he wants Harry to see and all the other stuff that's coming in is all that stuff that must have just been so intrinsically tied together yeah. with his emotions about Harry and about Lily and about Voldemort and so it, it's all just put together in this collage but they, they did keep it quite trim in terms of making sure they got the points across and there is so much more they could have put in there and there's quite a bit more in the book I think yeah, um, a lot more exposition. Yeah. Like, I think, like with Dumbledore's character, though, they keep Snape's uh, essential nature a bit more pure mm. in the film, um, and it's like he suddenly seems like this incredibly strong character who uh, did everything he did out of love for this woman and um, allowed himself to be the bad guy and and seen as the bad guy so that he could protect Harry and it's a little bit more shades of grey in the book there is there are things said which make it quite clear that he's got no interest really in protecting Harry at all it is purely because he's the last little bit of Lily left alive um, and yeah, when Dumbledore has him on the uh, mountaintop, he says that he's just told that Voldemort plans to kill Harry and that he wants Lily to be protected. Dumbledore asks him, why don't you just ask your Dark Lord to, to not kill her? And he says, I have, leaving out, and also I haven't asked him not to kill Harry or James. And Dumbledore actually says, you disgust me, mm. which would have confused the scene a little bit because people would have to have suddenly take, take stock and go actually no he's even more complex than I thought because he, he doesn't care about a child 
and that would have, have lasted throughout the whole. People would still have been reeling from that. Mm. There's there's more about um, why he and Lily stopped being friends in the first place as yeah. well. And his uh, nast his general nastiness. Yeah, there yeah. And his again the the weakness of character is mm. shown. It makes him that much more human and that much more complex. Yeah, he is he is a cruel man. He is an embittered man. He takes his frustrations out on people like Neville. Yeah. And he, he beats down on Potter. And even when Potter and Hermione and, and Ron achieve, he still takes points away from Gryffindor. It's, it's, it's kind of pathetic. Everybody's he become, downwards. He's become the, the, the bully that, that was everything he hated in James. But that's kind of true to life. You know, a, a lot of people who are in that sort of position, do, and, and not to make generalising statements, but a lot of people, it's the prefect uh, mentality. You know, it, if you were a, a first year and had prefects, you know, who were, who were horrid to you, you become a prefect and you do the same because it's what prefects do and it's what happened to you, so you will damn sure do it to other people. And, and he was in a position where his, his, his family, his, his dad certainly, most of his friends and all the people he was around didn't really think much of him uh, and treated him like dirt, so he's made sure that now he's in a position of power. That's the only way he knows how to treat someone else. Um, And and even if it's done towards Harry uh, with concern, it's still going to come off like he is a a damaged man and Mm. he doesn't have that ability just to be kind. You could see Draco going that way as well, being raised by his, his father and being you know, raised only among Slytherin, which uh, leads to, to one thing that uh, Dumbledore says, I think we sought you too early. No, and it underlines how ridiculous it is to make kids go into a club the moment they get to Hogwarts that defines you as a person. Mm-hmm. And you can't make decisions like that when you're 11. Not on the spot. Harry had only just heard about the four houses on the train to Hogwarts. And, you know, he heard about them from mostly Gryffindor-related people. Of course he's going to want to be in Gryffindor. And he knew his father was in Gryffindor as well. He's not going to consider Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw. For some reason, Hermione doesn't want to be in Ravenclaw. Although I think most kids don't necessarily go into the sorting with predefined ideas of where they want to be not as strong as Harry because Harry specifically asks to be in Gryffindor most kids are just going to go in there and and the hat will decide for them and in Hermione's case that may well have been the situation, she may not have made a choice oh no she says on the Hogwarts Express I want to be in Gryffindor actually when when Harry is sorted and I think this is true in the film and the book he doesn't say Gryffindor, he says not Slytherin not Slytherin, Slytherin, yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that if the if the hat had put him in Hufflepuff, I don't, I I don't think he would have had a big problem with it. At least not right away. It's mainly compounded by the fact that he's just met Draco, and Draco's just been a really terrible ambassador for Slytherin. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. Snape was thrust into Slytherin because he actually kind of was in that disposition, killing any possible chance he might have had of nurturing any other side of himself. I think that's why he's so drawn to Lily, though, because he it's it's made of made a lot of time and time again how kind Lily is. Snape is the opposite of kind. He is he is cruel and he's, he's nasty cruel. and he's weak. And I think he is drawn to the opposites in her. He he wants her to warm him. She's jealous. She's ordinary, and you're special. That's me, Severus.
a word against my did not refer to a woman. It spoke of a boy born at the end of July. Yes, but he thinks it's her son. He intends to hunt them down now, to kill them. Hide her. Hide them all. I beg you. What will you give me in exchange, Severus? Anything. faith in the wrong person, Severus. Rather like you. Must be told what? On the night Lord Voldemort went to Godric's Hollow to kill Harry. And Lily Potter cast herself between them. The curse rebounded. When that happened, a part of Voldemort's soul latched itself under the only living thing it could find. Himself. Well, there's a reason Harry can speak with snakes. There's a reason he can look into Lord Voldemort's mind. A part of Voldemort lives inside him. So when the time comes, the boy must die. Yes, he must die. You've kept him alive so that he can die at the proper moment. You've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. Don't tell me now that you've grown to care for the boy. a moment Jake you mentioned this I'm going to give you full precedence on this it's in film 7 it is there's a moment when it's just before the silver doe appears in the forest of Dean when the camera pans up to, to Harry seconds before it Harry's yes. been looking uh, no Harry looks in the mirror straight away Good, go. he does and if you listen very very carefully you can hear Snape clearly say trust me and it's a disembodied voice so it's probably very easy to miss but it's definitely there, and it's Snape saying, trust me. I'm going to see if I can forget the file and play that now. 
what I'd love to have seen would have been during the the Prince's Tale sequence would have been to see that from Snape's perspective. Him just hiding behind a tree using a a Confundus charm to make sure that he remains invisible. Yeah. Which leads on to a little slight frustration with the Prince's Tale for me, and that was that it's never explained how Snape knows that they're in the Forest of Dean, whereas it is in the books. How does he know? It's because Hermione in her bag has got a... Oh, that Phineas Nigellus. Yes, she's got a portrait from one of the... Uh, Hogwarts headmasters. So he's he, the least popular headmaster in Hogwarts yeah, history. <laughs> and he's reporting to Snape when, as and when he can. And he yeah. overhears Hermione say that they're in the Forest of Dean. Yeah. The issue there is that Joe has painted. <laughs> sorry to say this. Uh, the picture of a world where you can capture a piece of p- a person and put it in a portrait, which is all funny and all well and good when it's just there to be to give out information and, and she actually uses Phineas as a narrative aid you know let's play with this shall we he's here and he's also in Snape's office however when Harry gets to Hogwarts he goes straight to Dumbledore's study to try to talk to him and every single headmaster has vacated their pictures because they've all gone to different places in Hogwarts just so that Harry can't talk to Dumbledore and Dumbledore was asleep at the end of six just so that Harry can't talk to Dumbledore and the very very end of the book he does get to talk to Dumbledore and it's this kind of well why don't you just carry around a pocket Dumbledore once once you can finally get there get another picture of him uh, for God's sake this notion that there's a big part not just a part of a person not just a shade but a part of a person that can argue with you it's the whole personality isn't it basically Dumbledore's fully interactive with Snape yeah it's they're just they're talking. It's like, Joe, what you're doing here is creating something that means that when people die, they don't actually die. What I would say is that there's a slight difference, and, and we should make it clear that this isn't true of every picture of that yeah. person. It's true of the ones of the headmasters, certainly, and mm. perhaps some of the other paintings. But he can't converse with his parents, for example. But yeah, it's it, so he's got a photograph of his parents, and being a wizarding photograph, it can move. But the pictures of the headmasters of Hogwarts, that's part and parcel of the deal of being headmaster of Hogwarts is part of you has to be put into a painting so that you can live on and advise future headmasters. Yeah. Um, it's not really explained how much it's maybe just an imprint of their personality or how much of their memories also exist as well and whether they can truly be this Access entire resource. themselves that yeah. would allow you to talk to that person rather than just repeating little bits and it's like hang on I've just worked out that you can only remember the five minutes when you were having this portrait <laughs> done it's never explained and she can't explain it it's that simple um, because otherwise Harry would just be able to get a portrait of well it, they, he makes sure that the portrait of Snape remains at Hogwarts later on this is actually part of the, the canon um, so he could just go Snape I forgive you simple as that thank you <laughs> it's like okay so they're not actually dead brilliant okay and it's 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 that bit at the end of um, Phoenix where he he goes to to Nick and says, Nick, can Sirius come back as a ghost? No, the narrative doesn't call for it. Brilliant. So, so yeah, there's that. As I said earlier in the podcast, there's too many things in this series of books which are really cool when she writes them but would actually kind of break the story if they get used in the wrong way later on. So she has to invent narrative contrivances to stop that happening, which is a pain. There's one thing that they did miss out as well, which is uh, when Harry goes to use the pensive, he just runs straight into Dumbledore's office, or yeah. Burn, Snape's office at that point, um, although Snape has just obviously died. Um, that office is passworded. 
is always. Yeah. And there's a number of times Harry has to try and guess passwords. There's a number of times he's given the passwords. And at this point, he's running up to the office and he just knows in his heart of hearts that it's Dumbledore that's the password. Yeah. Um, I wondered, because other members of staff come into Dumbledore's office without having to be told the password, so presumably know it, I would assume that would be the same for Snape, and he could not tell a Death Eater that the password was Dumbledore. So I wonder if they didn't set up in the books some two passwords. Yeah, a specific password that Harry would know to get into the office if he ever had to, or anyone else would know. But like anyone walking past the area would go, "Oh, this school! Remember when the school was run by almost Dumbledore?" <laughs> in the statue. That was easy. <laughs> I think they need one of those retinal scan things. She invented one of those, but it, it, it punched you in the eye. Although I should say, uh, electronics of any kind do not work in the round Hogwarts. Is that so? That's so. Too much magic. Oh, is that why we, they don't bring in DVD players and Game Boys? That's it. Nice. So that's why all the people who would be used to those things, and, and they do make a passing reference to video games in a not terribly nice way regarding Dudley's uh, habits. Although uh, watches, it would appear, work. Watches on You should have a mechanical watch. Yeah. Clockwork. Clock is it like the Amish again? <laughs> like, sort of, there's a cutoff point. It's a Victorian times. So, like, in 200 years, when people, like, have iPads in their brains, will they then have DVD players at Hogwarts? <laughs> <laughs> or will it still be watches? Here's a theory from Cracked.com. At the beginning of the story, the owners of the Marauder's Map were Fred and George Weasley, the brothers of Harry's best friend, Ron. Now, they've had this map for years. In the third book, we discover that an evil wizard named Peter Pettigrew has been in disguise as Ron's rat scabbers for 12 years. We discover this because Harry saw Pettigrew's name show up when he had the map in his possession, despite Pettigrew's disguise as a rodent. So imagine every time Fred and George looked at Ron, there'd be some guy named Peter Pettigrew hanging around with him. Like, all the time. Like, going to bed with him. For years. But I suppose he was the same guy who used to hang out with Percy, so uh, maybe they thought nothing of it. If you stood in front of a bogger, what would it? What would you see? Um, I'd see what Mrs. Weasley sees in Order of the Phoenix. She sees her. Um, this is a, a bit awful, but um, she sees her children dead. Oh my God! <laughs> I know it's a bit disturbing. You are dark, so, aren't you? Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I think for any mother, probably that's the worst thing you could possibly imagine, and that's what she sees as the war is starting, and she knows her sons are going to be involved. Right, that's and what she worries how you, about. How do you, I've forgotten, how do you counter a bullet? What's the counter spell? You have to learn to laugh at it. Quite that's hard right. to laugh at that one, though, and in fact, she can't. Someone else saves her from it. She can't, she can't, um, she can't banish that image. Mum dying was like this death charge in my life. The pain of her, of her going and just missing such a huge part of her life. She's 45 when she died, which is far too young to die. Far too young to leave your family. Never knew what we all ended up doing and so on. For Mum, there would have been a particular glory in being a writer because she was the real book lover. And so it does add a little bit of poison to the knife, if you like, that the one thing that I think she really would have prized, she never knew. Perhaps two or three days after I had the idea for Harry. Um, I disposed of his parents in, a, in quite a brutal way. Not a cr not cr it didn't read in a cruel way, but I mean, it was very cut and dry, nothing lingering, no debate about how it had happened. Or, and at that stage, no real discussion of how painful that was going to be. Well, of course, Mum died six months after I'd written my first attempt at an opening chapter. Um, and that made an enormous difference. 
um, because I was living it. I was living what I'd just, what I'd just written. The mirror of error said, he's absolutely entirely drawn from my own experience of losing a parent. Five more minutes, just please God give me five more minutes. It'd never be enough. Harry's acceptance of death is absolutely key to him becoming master of the uh, Hallows. The, they're meant to be used in a very specific way. The invisibility cloak that he's used for so many years to shield not only himself, but uh, his friends and other people uh, as well, to protect them, to, to keep them from harm, um, is absolutely the way that, that needs to be used in an unselfish way. And when he uses the resurrection stone in the book is because he's trying to get through dementors and cannot access happy thoughts at that point he can't summon a patronus but using the resurrection stone to not forcibly pull the dead back to him but to allow him to walk into the jaws of death and to allow them to guide him is a honorable way to use it which is what can only help his case when it comes to getting the wand off of Voldemort that's a very touching scene. That, that scene gets me every time. One thing it's important to remember is that although the Lupin and Tonks um, relationship is shortchanged, we've had a whole movie to get to know Lupin and to really like his character and to feel that he was a, a crucial part of Harry's past and someone that he was hoping to be there in his future. So his death does impact no matter what they've alluded to in the past few films regarding Tonks. Yeah, very much so. I thought it was quite odd the way they played that the, that scene in the film, although it makes sense because Harry's mother has become much more important in the, the story, the way the films tell it, than his father in the past uh, three films, probably. Mm. Um, he almost doesn't talk to his father at all. He talks to his mother most, and then he mm. turns to Sirius and Lupin at particular points, and, and he throws almost cursory glances back at his father. It's quite weird, really. You'd, you'd think he'd all want to, to, to speak to them both on equal footing. All got, he knows of him is that he's a bullying git. Yeah, yeah I was going to say disappointed. I got the impression that he sort of feels that he doesn't really know his dad as well as he knows his, knows his mum, which is why the interaction is more prevalent with his mother. I was always expecting something huge to come to light about James in the books. I was like, okay, right, so he was an asshole in Phoenix. We don't really get to hear about him much in uh, Half-Blood. So in this last book, something will come to light about something James... Because, you know, it was always that James just died. And it's an unusual relationship uh, that Joe has pointed out, uh, that a boy and his mother, it doesn't usually get done in literature too much, because if you do it wrong, the mother becomes this, this, this you know, all-consuming matriarch. But it's a very tender relationship there, and she kind of has had to downplay the James aspect of that. Mm. In the books, it feels like Harry, after Phoenix, has moved on past that aspect of his father. Yeah. You know, he speaks to Lupin Sirius, and the loss of Sirius becomes much more important um, than any trifling he may have over the way his father behaved. Because as we grow up, and I assume all of us here feel, someone at school, as a child, as a teenager, can be or can seem like quite an atrocious person and grow up to be a much better person than that. Yeah. The difficulty in the books is that James didn't actually have long to grow up after um, he left school before he was no longer around. Um, he to develop character. So in the films, they actually have, have given themselves, making James a bit older, much more scope to say that he was redeemed, but obviously they never then spend the time or have the time to, to go and do that. Um, 
so yeah, it's almost like his dad in the in sort of some sort of hybrid between the books and the films is actually the, his the parent of Harry's that he has to sort of get away from mm. uh, in terms of or distance himself from uh, when compared to his mother, who's the person he ends up much more wanting to uh, to emulate, I suppose. I do really, really like the way they have um, the the three marauders there um, in this scene. And I think I've said this before, but they are all fathers to Harry in some way. Um, James is obviously his biological father and was there when he was tiny. Um, But Lupin was the father that started him growing up and told him what he needed to know to to sort of set foot on on, um, his journey towards being an adult. And Sirius helps him to um, complete the final stages of that. Um, So in turn, they have all had a contribution to his growing um, in in a way that a father would if, if that father was there. And of course, the presence that's not there is Snape, who in a way was also a father to him because behind the scenes he's the one who's been protecting him all this time. Yeah, very much. And I suppose the counter to that, which why is why that scene focuses so much on Harry's mother, is she is his only mother. She, mm. he's he's sort of seen um, Molly Weasley as a pseudo mother figure, but uh, again in in Phoenix he started to feel that that was too, pardon the phrase, Molly coddling of her. You know, mm. she was too protective of him and. Mm. And again, it was serious that he flocked to then as a as a father figure. So yeah. Also, so yeah, I, I think the the scene where um, the Weasleys all fall together over um, Fred, Harry seems very very distant to that. Although he's always been sort of an adopted member of the Weasley family, he does not go to them at that stage, and he mm. he seems to instinctively feel that that's not his place at that time. Um, and you know, in this in his moment of confusion and and not being sure about what he should do next that the family he's had to support him he can't break in on what they're going through now and he is once again on his own and i think that's why it is so important that he has this family um around him when he walks into the jaws of death just uh, so that we can talk about some age disparity thing here after the end of the series Daniel Radcliffe playing an 18 year old I was just thinking about this because his father's supposed to be 21 his, the ghost of his father so he's only supposed to be like 3 years older than Harry at that point he looks like a sort of middle aged man in a sweater he's clearly mid to maybe <laughs> late 40s isn't he yeah, I would if you say start thinking about the chronology of the film, it doesn't make any sense at all, no. if you consider the age. But you're going to have to just basically take certain ages for, for granted that certain actors are playing uh, characters of different ages. So Daniel Radcliffe is a 21-year-old at the end here, playing an 18-year-old. Gary Oldman is a 53-year-old, playing a 35-year-old. Adrian Rawlins, who plays Harry's father forever at age 21, is 52 in this final film. On a side note, Rawlins also played Arthur Kipps in the television adaptation of The Woman in Black, a role Daniel Radcliffe took up for the big screen this year. Michael Gambon is a 70-year-old, playing a 115-year-old. But I think the... the, the Alan Rickman's the big one, isn't he? That's the one. 37 years old, he's 66 in this film. And he also plays... He also plays about 21. About 21, yeah. And at the same time, it's believable. Why is it believable? But it is. Because Alan Rickman is awesome. Truth. 
one more thing to add to Snape's story. In Half-Blood Prince, the book, Harry screams after him that he's a coward, and Snape reacts very aggressively to that. The notion that he's being called a coward when he is having to do this incredibly brave, not just act, but series of acts. He's having to play a part. He's having to be a traitor, and he's having to risk the fact that not only would his, could his actions possibly lead to great evil, but that he will be hated forever for this. By both sides, potentially. By both sides, yeah. yeah. By everyone. The lot of the traitor. It reminds me of my favourite character in my favourite Metal Gear Solid game. He gets called a coward there. Harry calls him a coward in, in this, and, and Snape roars at him to stop calling him a coward. And the final circle on that is Harry saying to his son that Severus Snape was the bravest man he's ever met. So it, it's, it's acknowledgement that, that he is not a coward at all. And neither is Harry. When he walks into the jaws of death, and there's the, the way Joe writes it in the book, savouring every final second of life, you know, wondering how many heartbeats he has left and counting the moments until he dies. And he's, you know, suddenly when he's about to die, he wants to live so desperately, but at the same time he knows he has to and he has this duty. And it's like she's gotten into the mindset of a soldier going into a certain death mission that all he's hoping for is that he can do some good with this, that he can give his life for something worthy. Yeah, very much. Reading that in the books was just so hard. And it was mentioned in the books that Harry literally sees these people around him as he's on his way out of the castle and refuses to go to them because he knows that, that if one word from them and he will he will falter, he will not do what he needs to do. Yeah. So, um, and I, but I think it's also very fitting that he has the resurrection stone there. And whereas some people might abuse the Hallows. Harry knows exactly how those hallows are to be used. Absolutely. Not for him, but for for what he must do. And so he has that. I, I'd argue that Snape has his moment in the pensive, and Dumbledore has his moment to come. Those are the two other father figures Harry has had, and I think it's actually right that they're not there as part of the group that, that greet Harry, because the people that Harry wants to see are not the man who has sent him as a pig to slaughter and I don't think Harry blames Dumbledore for that but I don't think he wants him there to see Harry go to his death what Joe has said in the past is that the first book had to be an all encompassing version of what the the seven books would turn out to be in case the first book was the the first and last because when she wrote that she didn't know if she would get a chance to write the rest of this story so many of the themes many of of the of the story beats are actually repeated through the series right down to the way Harry defeats Voldemort and ultimately the reason that Harry defeats Voldemort and the, the theme of or the theme of the series in that and it's put across that they're not ghosts and then there's nothing seemingly unnatural or summoned against their will about them this notion that when Sirius points to Harry's heart and says that we're here ultimately one of the greatest human mysteries is what happens when we die and what happens to the people that we love when they die that we all want to think that they're there with us and a lot of us myself included believe that they are it plays into all of our fears and all of our loves at once that's probably the best way of putting it I always well up a little bit at the closing lines of, of Harry saying stay close and his mother saying always. Yeah. Which is a reprise of Snape's line of always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been so brave, sweetheart. Why are you here? 
all of you. We never left. Does, does it hurt? Dying. Quicker than falling asleep. You're nearly there, son. I'm sorry. I never wanted any of you to die for me. And Remus, your son. Others will tell him what his mother and father died for. One day, he'll understand. You'll stay with me. Until the end. And he won't be able to see you? No. There's something very stone table about Harry's uh, walking towards the Death Eaters and them all, well, not even expecting him to, to be there and to go through with, with the bargain. There's less of the um, humiliation in the film, but there's a lot of that post-mortem in the, in the book where, where Voldemort, you know, parades his corpse around. Yeah. Uh, it's... Harry is... Uh, someone said that uh, on the forums that Dumbledore never earns the right to be Aslan. If anyone's Aslan, and if anyone's Jesus, it's Harry. The notion that in the same way as his, his mother didn't necessarily trust herself to, uh, to, to deeper magic, we don't know about Lily's motivations. We don't know if it's something she planned or it's just something that happened. Harry is party to deeper magic, which is based on the strength that he exhibits and the self-sacrifice. Immediately you see the Matrix uh, as a, you know, a slightly more mature person. And reading this, this last book, it's tough not to say, oh, X is Jesus, you know, that's who they are in the story. And the problem with that is that the Bible in many ways either is the, the origin of or it just exhibits many of the, the tropes and the styles of stories and the, the sort of overarching stories that we see all around us in all areas of, of popular culture and, and all sorts. It is so, a crucible of mythology. Yeah. So some way sooner or later you can always point back to some aspect of that story, the, the Bible story, and say, oh, well, this just came from it, you know, and, and it seems like the origin of so many stories and it's just because they share so many tropes and so it's ridiculously oversimplifying to just say Harry Potter is Jesus ultimately the Jesus story plays to all of our hearts of the, the notion of someone who is willing to actually give themselves up for a greater cause Jesus, Aslan, Harry, Neo none of them knew they were going to come back otherwise the, the sacrifice is absolutely meaningless yeah. But it also it plays into another, another thing that Joe wanted to write about, and that is that Sharon mentioned this last week. I felt it would be a betrayal of the character if I showed Harry doing anything other than living what all along he has discovered to be true, which is that 
love is the strongest power there is. And I thought a lot about people who had been through terrible things like wars, and having to come home and rebuild and um, espouse normality after seeing horrors has always seemed to me to be such a courageous thing to do. And climbing back to normality after, after trauma is much, much harder. It's much harder to rebuild than um, to destroy. In some ways, it would have been a neat ending to kill him, a neater ending to kill him. But I felt it would have been a betrayal because I, I wanted my hero, and he's my hero, to do what I think is the most noble thing. So he came back from war, and he tried to build a better world, I suppose, corny as that sounds, both on a, on a small scale for a family and a larger scale. And Harry pitches up in an ethereal version of King's Cross. Yeah. Anybody? <laughs> King's Cross. The intro that uh, the Dumbledore gives him of... Uh, Harry, you wonderful boy. You brave, brave man. Let us walk. You wonderful boy, you brave, brave man. It's, it's just what you wanted to have Dumbledore say to Harry at that point. He deserved it. In the book, he's a lot more humble and self-effacing. He's humble at this point anyway, but he's, suddenly he's Dumbledore the White. And he's walking along, spouting ancient wisdom uh, to Harry. And uh, you know, it's, it's like they're standing in the Matrix and he's saying... He's the architect. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, he's, he's Morpheus. He, he's saying, so, yeah. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? But in the book, and I don't think it necessarily I prefer it, Dumbledore comes across as a lot more um, of... Look, I've, I've made some mistakes in my life a lot. In fact, you are by far the better man, Harry Potter. And just reminding him that ultimately he, he needs to be taken down off any pedestal he's been on. Interestingly... I would say I prefer Dumbledore once in book seven he was taken off that pedestal because it's all very easy to have this wise, benevolent, good through and through, you know, just perfect person all the way to the end who knew exactly what he was doing, mm. didn't put Harry in harm's way unless he had to, but isn't it more interesting and doesn't it make him a better man if he wasn't whiter than white, if he wasn't pure, if he had troubles and a, a troubled past and human problems to work through and still did the mostly the right thing you know when faced with a, a difficult choice a person who is good and is always good always makes the good choice and that's not terribly interesting because they didn't have to struggle with it necessarily yeah. but a person who is troubled and has lost family and has real demons in their past you know the plans that he had with Grindelwald for uh, humankind were not good plans. They weren't, but well, they're understandable yeah. to a certain extent. Not to say that, that we, any of us might agree with them. They are understandable because of what he saw happen to his family because of muggles. And so to, to see this character made all the more real in the same way that um, Snape could have just been bad or could have just been good, but it's so much more interesting to me and it gives me a lot more respect for the characters and for the writing that mm these characters made mistakes, they learned from their mistakes, and they tried to do the best they can, even though it may not have been their natural inclination to do what they did. They fought their, their natural instinct to try and 
and be better than perhaps they were, you know, or had been before. It's Joe addressing the, the, the bigger issues of, of what is one of the, the greatest human fears. If we actually knew genuinely on paper what happens after we die, it would change our species and the way we treat each other. Because no one knows. That's the, the whole point is that no one knows, and we all just have to suspect. But this is Harry being told, not everything that happens, but that there is safety in it. It's not a void and chaos and suffering, and that he has nothing to fear from death, which puts him leagues ahead of Voldemort, who fears nothing but death. Oh boy. Is he dead? Just before that, actually, uh, Draco has to change from the Hogwartian side to the Death Eaters. And it's a wonderful bit of, of, of acting when Lucius Voldemort... It's brilliant. Voldemort hugs Draco, oh, but it's, it's kind of this, like, hugs. I've seen people do this. You've got to, like, it's put like your Gordon hand Brown's on their life. back. And it's, it's like he's doing this death choke on, on Draco. Or something. It's yeah. like, well done, Draco. And it's, it's just a really great moment to show that he doesn't understand the most basic human interaction. The hug is the first thing that we get when we're loved, when we're, when we're babies, when we are infants, when we are one minute old, we get held to our mother. And it's the first like thing so. we're compelled to do when we see someone in distress or upset or, or in pain is, is to reassure them in some sort of basic physical way that they are safe. Mm. It would have been less unnatural for Voldemort to high-five him at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Malfoy, what were you going to say? Um, yeah, what I was going to say is there's, there's a really nice moment. Well, first of all, Lucius asks uh, Draco to come over, and Draco mm. doesn't, and doesn't look like he's going to. Then his mother steps in and says something, and Draco does, and that's very clear, and it, it's, you know, what it is. But when Draco comes over and Voldemort's hugged him, and Draco walks back to his mother directly, you see Lucius turn around, and there's an air of the pride coming back in. He holds his chin up a little bit, looks around to the rest of the Death Eaters. He's making the best of the situation he's in, but the pride comes back out, and it's the, the small sign that his family may be back on the rise, you know, um, that, that his son did the right thing, which to the Death Eaters would mean nothing, because they're all on that side anyway, but and the juxtaposition between that moment and then three minutes later when you see Lucius sort of scared and, and afraid and running just to get away from the whole situation again yeah. just, it's but he's trailing after Narcissa and, and Draco yeah. are walking off and it's like are you coming? I, I don't even care if you're coming at this point yeah. he has been disavowed by his son and his wife and he has lost absolutely everything he is he, he would be a tragic character but there's you no know, pity for he, him I, there's no pity for Lucius Malfoy he has done all of this himself and, and it's not even like I suppose he probably had a similarly awful emotional upbringing to, to Draco but 
He could have changed it around at any point, for God's sake. And obviously there is some humanity there in Narcissa, and definitely his son. So it's not like the family has been starved of that entirely. So yeah, they'd be better off without him. And then we get to the finale, and this is a point that a lot of people on the forum have really contended. They don't like the way that it diverges from the book. In the book, for the unfamiliar, Neville makes a clumsy lunge out towards Voldemort. It, it's just it's a sort of weak attempt at an attack. He doesn't even seem to really cast any spells. Voldemort freezes him on the spot, does Accio sorting hat, pulls the sorting hat out of Dumbledore's office, shoves it down onto Neville's head, sets it on fire, uh, while Neville's still wearing it, and Neville's screaming on the inside, and says, you know, from now on, everyone's going to be in Slytherin. Something happens that creates chaos. I mean, basically the entire crowd erupts in rage that, that Voldemort is doing this to, to the only person who actually stood up to him, and everyone comes to defend Neville. Chaos breaks out, that's Joe's words, and uh, then Neville somehow gets free, pulls the hat off, pulls out this, uh, the sword, and then, because Harry mentioned it to him, kills the snake. In the film, you don't get that. It's different. Yeah, the... Um the killing of the snake seems a bit more contrived in the film. Um, and I say that because Ron and Hermione seem to be going after the snake, then the snake turns on them, and then Neville comes out of nowhere. Literally almost a deus ex machina. I mean, we know Neville... Well, actually, in the film, Neville hasn't been told he needs to kill the snake. No, and yeah. Harry shouted that when they go back into the castle. Because Harry's back at the door of the castle saying, everyone get inside, we need to kill the snake or worse to that effect. Right, yeah. so, so Neville does know about it, but he certainly doesn't know that... Th- it's a horcrux. Th- it's a horcrux, exactly. And from the fact that Nagini was defended, it might be reasonable to assume that you would have to use a basilisk fang or the sword to kill it. And Neville doesn't know that either, so it's kind of, in the film, just chance. When he gets up in the Great Hall, it's almost like destiny is compelling him forward. It's like, I've got a job to yeah. do. I've got to go and kill the snake. Whereas the whole point of the book seems to have been about determinism. And, you know, you decide your own fate. Yeah. And, and Neville is presented with the sword for an act of bravery and based on what Harry has told him. So Harry told Neville, and that was a particular choice Harry made, and Neville then chooses to act on it again. Whereas, yeah, he seems to come flying out of nowhere, and it's a very heroic moment, and I think that's why they chose to do it the way they did in the film, is that Neville gets his heroic moment without having to look once more like a bit of an idiot frozen with a burning hat on his head, which visually I don't think works either, to be honest. Although the the sentiment of of Voldemort saying everyone's in Slytherin is part and parcel of the world he's he's looking to create, which is every wizard's in Slytherin and every muggle is underfoot, as it were. Mm. One thing you do get from Neville's moment in the film, which you don't get in the book. In the book, it shows it, and in the film, it says it. It's a it's a reversal of what normally happens. Neville's coming going up and making a stand is a is a way for for everyone else at Hogwarts to kind of rally around him. In the film, he actually makes that wonderful speech, which I'm going to play now. Well, I must say I'd hoped for better. (laughs) And who might you be, young man? Never Longbottom. Well, Neville, I'm sure we can find a place for you in our rank. I'd like to say something. (laughs) 
Well, Neville, I'm sure we'd all be fascinated to hear what you have to say. Doesn't matter that Harry's gone. Stand down, Neville. People die every day. Friends. Family. Yeah. We lost Harry tonight. He's still with us. And here, so spread. Remus, Tonks, all of them. They didn't die in vain. But you will, because you're wrong. <laughs> Harry's heart did beat for us. For all of us! It's not over! The, the notion being that, that Harry was just a player in the greater scheme of this, and that they have so much left still to fight for, and that they can actually win this point, and they needed that rallying point. No, it's almost a, a mirror of Harry saying, you know, that uh, as long as there are those loyal to Dumbledore at, uh, at Hogwarts, he's not really yeah. dead. So, you get that kind of nice... Uh, Symmetry. And uh, then there's the snake hunt, which again, like I said, Hermione and Ron have got nothing to do at this point. So giving them the danger of uh, Nagini, who initially Voldemort tries to use to punk Harry to get him in the back while they're on the stairwell. This is a... Because in the book, none of this fight between Voldemort and Harry around Hogwarts occurs. It just... Um, Harry goes under his invisibility cloak, goes into the hall where everyone else is fighting, and he's throwing out shield charms and jinxes to shield and protect other people. Again, using his hallow to protect other people rather than to directly inflict fatal harm on others. Hermione and Ron are now hunting Nagini because they've, been, they've got these basilisk fangs, they've got a job to do, and we've spent so many films with these characters that you can't just sort of shunt them to the side and go, oh yeah, they were there too. It's like we want to see what Ron and, and uh, uh, Hermione are doing. I suppose it's that they are used as a MacGuffin to put in danger so that Neville can have his wonderful moment where he cuts, cuts the head off the snake and you could just say that it's, it's you know sort of Neville getting up and being drawn by fate again you could interpret it that that actually isn't what they were doing he stands up he's in the great hall he can see out in the stairwell Ron and Hermione are trying to escape from a giant snake he's got a sword he puts two and two together yeah yeah and, and the important thing is that Neville does get to uh, to kill the snake because again they, they changed it in the film but in the books every Horcrux is destroyed by a different person. And that yeah. was a conscious decision that Voldemort was not taken down by any one person. Everyone had a hand in it. And they actually changed that in the film because Harry destroys the tiara as well, whereas it's, it's Crab's Fiendfire that destroys it in the book. Um, yes. So Crab actually destroyed one of the Horcruxes. Ironically destroyed yeah. by his own evil. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> and, of course, you get the Molly fight, which is pretty much exactly the same as it is in the... Uh, book only it's a bit more explosive at the end mm. wonderful Julie Waters really throwing herself into this particular fight and the viciousness going between them and not my daughter you bitch <laughs> and Bellatrix getting hers is absolutely essential because she has been a loathsome character that is quite legitimate to hate in, the, in this series I think Sharon you were saying uh, earlier that you could take the moral Charles Xavier high ground that killing this person would lower you to their level and would only create more monsters and, and would not solve the problem but eh, you could just say take the Wolverine uh, low ground and just say 
dude was a psychopath. Killing this person prevented deaths. Yeah, I think Joe makes it fairly clear where she stands on the necessity of death sometimes. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of the, uh, the people who are killed by the good guys, for want of a better term. It, it's done so in a very clear case of, of self-defence and, and of well, not necessarily self-defence. Well, there's very few. It, Almost no one in the Harry Potter film dies as a result of a quote-unquote good guy killing them. Yes, but when it happens, it's, it, you are left in no doubt that um, it's ethically acceptable. Is that the When else does it happen? Anyone? I think this is the in, thing... In the films, not the books. The, the, the question quickly becomes, when duelling, why do you use anything but Avada Kedavra? If it's an unblockable curse and you intend to kill, why would you ever use a stunning spell or a... I mean, the, the fight at the end of the Order of the Phoenix is quite laughable, actually, because if a stunning spell is what the kids are using, why do they start using leg locker curses and all sorts of other wild and wonderful curses that they start using when in the film they actually just stick to throwing stunning curses effectively is what they're using for everything and so when it comes to um, good guys fighting to fighting death eaters the reason they're not using Avada Kedavra is because they don't intend to kill so I think I'm right in saying any quote unquote good person in the books is going to be killing as a result of an accident they are going to be stunning someone and the result of that obviously if you stun someone off a broom and they fall to their death potentially depending upon mm. whether their magical ability saves them at the last minute um, or not uh, when Hermione stuns Fenrir out of the um, window yeah yeah exactly yeah. I'd also imagine that Evada Kedavra takes a lot out of you because it is an in- insane amount of intent to actually well as, as Voldemort says you've got to mean it you've got yeah. to it's basically, if you're going to put it in fighting game terms, it's doing an extremely complicated special move when you could just be doing a stun jab, which is why they go stun, 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 which takes a lot less of yourself. Well, that and in chaos like that, if you miss and hit one of your own people with a leg lock curse, you can reverse that. If you hit them yeah. with a vada cadaver, you can't. Not, but ultimately, not the Death Eaters would be concerned about, but something that the other side would. I think it's, in, it's, in the book, doesn't Harry, he, he wants to get involved in one of the fights, but he doesn't dare because he doesn't want to hit Ginny or, or anybody else that's yeah. his friend. But ultimately, when Advada Kedavras are flying around from other people, just stunning one of your friends accidentally could get them killed by someone else's Advada Kedavra. So it's, it, it takes an yeah. extreme amount of measure. Everyone's been very quiet on the subject. I don't think anyone else actually gets directly killed by a good guy in these films. Or in the books, I can't think of anything. Barty Crouch Jr. receives the Dementor's kiss as a calculated move from Fudge, which, as far as I'm concerned, is lobotomizing him. And, and Fudge, we can debate all day, is not a particularly good character. He's, he's yeah, mixed. definitely he, shady. He, even if you just put it down to error of judgment, he's, he's got a lot of those on his conscience. You know, he, he, he puts people in Azkaban for what seemed to be pretty much no good reason. You know, th- there's a big question over his moral standing. Anyway, the same goes for Umbridge. She does some awful things. She doesn't actually uh, kill anyone, as far as I know, but she certainly sends Dementors after Harry, and that could well have ended in his death, or, or uh, as you say, lobotom- lobotomization. The notion of of putting your soul in danger and actually cutting it up with the act of murder. Pretty much everyone in the entire book is 
saved from that. Saved from the ethical and spiritual quandary of the notion of having to take a life. Snape. Except Snape. Except Snape. And that... That's for a particular reason in the story. Yeah. And Which we've already discussed. Of course, tonight. Molly has just about the best reason going. So, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic moment of female empowerment to, 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 to bring not just a woman, but the matriarchal figure to a position where she is, for the entire series, she's you know, showered them with, with, with love and, and concerns over, over what they're doing and trying to shield them from everything. But when it comes down to it, Molly is the person who actually has it within her to end the life of the most dangerous Death Eater. And in the book, they make it very clear that um, three young witches together were struggling against Bellatrix on her own. And when Molly steps in, I, it, there, I think there may even be specific reference to the fact that both, or the one work of both women's was just unbelievable. And it's not mm. something in the book or in the films you would expect of Molly. It's, yeah. But it is something that fits because as a mother defending her child, she would literally do anything. I think we all understand what an act of evil is and Voldemort qualifies extravagantly for acts of evil. He has, um, he's killed not out of self-defense, not to protect, not to do, not for any of the reasons that we might all be able to envisage, or most of us could envisage ourselves killing in certain extreme situations if people we loved were threatened or in, in, in war. He's killed cold-bloodedly, sometimes for enjoyment, um, and for his own personal gain. I call that evil. And yes, at the end of the book, you have a clash of two utterly, utterly different, again, for want of better word, souls. One that has been maimed and has become less than human, because to me, human includes the capacity to love, and Voldemort has deliberately de dehumanised himself. And this very, this flawed vulnerable, damaged, and yet still fighting, still loving, still daring to love and daring to hope soul, which is Harry. And they meet and they clash, and it's what happens when they clash that gives us our denouement. So then we finish with what it's always been about, which is Tom and Harry. Now, in the book, this is them in the hall circling each other, explaining all of the nuances of the plot and the ins and outs and the loopholes and just reminding everyone of, of where everyone was and what Harry knows and what Voldemort knows and ultimately what Harry is gambling on. Uh, and that does come across in, like, two lines, but it's just Harry and Voldemort and they are around the castle in Hogwarts this one place that means so much to both of them but they have been so isolated in nonetheless but in the book I like the fact that it's done in the hall in front of everyone and Harry starts tearing Tom down calling him Tom pointing out that Snape was not his pointing out to everyone in that hall that Voldemort is not to be feared and that is what Voldemort fears above all, is all those people in the hall seeing him for the scared little boy that he is. And that's missed in the film, I think. They touch on it in a couple of lines. Harry gets to definitely show Tom that he's got the upper hand. You know, he's confident. He grabs Tom by the, the neck, calling him Tom, and, and throws them off the tower. But it either needed a few more lines extra dialogue, I think, uh, a bit less flying around or they should have set it in front of an audience if you will 
because that's what Harry was doing at that point was he was showing the entire wizarding community that they did not have to be scared of this man. I think the reason they simplify it in the um, the film, there's various other things. For one thing, it's for dramatic effect that this notion that they would be talking to each other and not just go straight at it in front of people or not doesn't really make much sense. Again, Harry could just say, he's mortal now go for your life and then everyone could have just stunned Tom at once all in one go because at that point he really was he, mm. he basically you know, once the snake hit if the snake had been killed at the point it was supposed to be Tom would be effectively defenseless he can't block 50 spells at once um, and he'd have to slink away again and then you know, turn into smoke and, and bugger off but um, when it comes down to it Harry needs to get into a place where it's just the two of them and the ultimate final symbolism is that they both choose a spell and it's the same as in Little Hangleton. Tom goes for a Vada Kedavra because he knows nothing else. And Harry goes for Expelliarmus because he wants an end to conflict. And arguably he knows nothing else. That's the spell that gave <laughs> him away at, at the beginning of the seventh book. Yeah. It's, it's his speciality. It's the one he knows. But, and again, you're absolutely right. Harry wants to disarm. He does not want to harm someone if he doesn't... You know, Even if he has to, he doesn't want to harm someone. And so that's why he chooses it. But ultimately, Harry is every bit as... Uh, guilty of relying on one spell as as Voldemort is, it's just obviously with a positive intention. Having said that, Harry also knows in the film as well as he does in the book, it's not uh, immediately indicated, but if he does know in the film in the same way as he does in the book, then he knows that Expelliarmus should actually yield fantastic results because the Elder One's allegiances will be entirely with him. And he's right. So it's not just well, this is my best spell, it's the one I know. It's the trident test. That's my it. one now. But yeah, yeah. He also knows that Voldemort's power's been diminished as well because he died to protect everyone, so everyone's yeah. got that protection. I presume it covers him as well when he comes back, the protection of someone having died to protect them. That's right, in the book, that's uh, that actually That is quite in a the book. Part, yeah. I, you know what, I've just finished reading the book, and you're right, but she doesn't go into that in enough um, detail to really... It's hinted um, at, but it's not. It's concrete, hinted yeah. at, but he, he, Harry doesn't. Say, yeah, of course. Because ultimately, then, if you if you say that, then there's no tension in that final battle. No, yeah. that's true. If, um, and and also, Voldemort. Also, it's only for against Voldemort, isn't it? It's not. It's um, only Voldemort. But Voldemort's yeah. also got the Achilles heel that the wand still isn't working for him as it should be. So yeah. there's there's multiple reasons, including the fact that Voldemort's soul has been teared down to its bare minimum now multiple reasons why Voldemort is is weakened in, in this position. They've shown that the lack of allegiance on the wand by, by having it actually crack and break repeatedly, which wasn't in the book. And it's a really great visual thing in the film just to show how little control he genuinely has here. And again, it adds to that sense of pity, which does resurface when Tom finally chokingly doesn't accept death, but has death forced upon him and, and simply has nothing left and then becomes ash. You feel sorry for him in the, the the fact that Lily's song comes up again. It's this kind of mournful. Well, this is what you reaped.
And the, what what closure is there is nice. I've just always like it's just a it's a very quick ending and a quick closing of the door on the world that uh, obviously like I could use just five minutes more of uh, saying goodbye to this. Yeah, I guess in, in in that respect, the books don't do a terribly good job. You get the end of the battle and you get the scene where Harry's talking to Ron Hermione about the wand. And and, fi- and he actually fixes his own wand, which he's kept yeah, in a pouch on his neck. That's a bit that always felt a little bit dissatisfying to me. This notion that Harry's wand breaks, and then that's it. He just goes. <laughs> but you really get in the book that he misses his wand so yeah. much. So he puts the elder wand back into Dumbledore's grave, but beforehand he fixes the wand. Yeah. And it's kind of he's sacrificing the extreme power to just be Harry again. Uh, and and yeah, in in the books you can't just snap a wand into even if you are master of the wand. It it's stated pretty explicitly that it took an incredibly powerful spell from Hermione to break Harry's wand. Um, mm-hmm. And and so what Harry does is put the the elder wand to rest in in Dumbledore's grave in the hope yeah. that if he dies a natural death, the power of the elder wand dies with him. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's the idea behind that it. That seems like sequel bait to me. <laughs> Which means that if there more on this in a bit, but if there are future books then there's gonna be a divergence between the film and the book where, you know, it's like we've recovered the one from the grave. We've recovered the one from the gorge and got a lot of sticky tape. <laughs> <laughs> know, it, it yeah, it does seem a little, a little sort of huh? But the other thing is that the wand kept breaking over and over again, and it's almost like it was on its last legs there anyway. Yeah. It's it's 800 years old at least. It's killed countless people. It's gone back and forth from wizard to wizard. It doesn't even remember what it is to begin with. I, I, I don't know. I, I actually think that the master of the uh, Elder Wand could probably break it, and we have seen it as proof of concept in the film, so I don't know. It, it must have been run past Joe first. It wouldn't have been approved otherwise. Yes. I, I think they wanted to show him breaking it because it shows his utter rejection of using those hallows for anything other than good, although in the books it's explicitly said that he leaves the stone where it is, puts the wand where it will be safe until it loses its power, uh, but he keeps hold of the cloak because that was his dad's and therefore is rightfully his. Um, and and so there, there's a, a closure in books. And, and I agree that certainly you could say, well, okay, he's master of the wand. It's perfectly feasible that he could break the wand because it's his intent to break the wand and therefore it would yield to his control over it. But but yeah, it's just a, a bit of a change. But it, it does make for a nice scene where he throws it off and then uh, particularly Hermione... Uh, you can see when she turns round, she's very impressed with his ability to just to to throw, which he's always done, to to throw any notion of power or want for fame or infamy just aside. You know that's never what it's about for him, and it's one nice final reminder the way they show it in the film. Jo ends the series by giving Harry a family. She's worked out the future of all the surviving characters and draws out a family tree for the Potters and the Weasleys. Victoire, who's in the epilogue, she is so named because she was born on the anniversary of the battle that finished it all, uh, which is the 2nd of May, if anyone's been paying attention. And then Charlie had children or married. Is he gay? Dumbledore's gay. 
But I told, I told a reader that once, and I thought she was going to slap me. But I always saw Dumbledore as gay. Um, no, I don't think Charlie's gay. Just more interested in dragons than women. Uh, Percy married Audrey. Don't you think that's a very Percy-like wife's name? And they had Molly and Lucy. And then uh, Fred, poor Fred, died in 1997. And then George. A lot of readers asked me, was George all right? And of course, he wouldn't be all right, would he? That's, that's the reality. I can't. But I think that he married Angelina, who was actually Fred's ex. So you can... Maybe it's a bit unhealthy, but I think that they would have been happy. As happy as he could be without Fred, I think he really would have felt like part of himself died. And then there's Ginny who marries Harry. And Ginny marries Harry, and they have James, Sirius, godparents Ron and Hermione. They have Albus Severus, who's the one I'm most interested in. And then third, Lily Luna, for their dear friend. And what happens to Luna? Oh, Luna marries um, Rolf Scamander who is the grandson of a great naturalist, so they'd have a very interesting life, globe-trotting and looking for weird animals. But I think she'd have twin boys. But later, that would be much later than this lot, who will settle down earlier. And are they happy? Um, yes, I think so. My lot are all happy. The twin boys have got names too? Lorcan and Lysander. That's all right with you? Very Shakespearean. <laughs> I can't, I can't help it. You know what it was like? It was like running a race and you get to the finishing line and you're running too fast to stop. So I do know what happened afterwards. I couldn't stop my imagination doing that. So I know this sounds an awful lot of detail to go into for your own satisfaction and not because you're planning to write more books, but that's just how it was. I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop. I had to know. I had to know what happened next. Well, you always have to know more than you put in. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I carried that on into another generation. But yes, I... So all of that could be another book. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't. Oh, no, it can't, it can't be. No. I, do, I, I think it would be, you've got, no, I think it's definitely time to stop, time to stop now. It gives me a certain satisfaction to say what I thought happened and to, and to tell other people that because... Um, because I would like my version to be the official version still, even though I've not written it in a book. Because it's my world. But uh, no, I don't, I don't want to write any more Hogwarts books. And that, of course, leads us to the notion of future books, which is something that's been hinted at back and forth, um, and, and, and Joe's been asked and has responded, no, yeah, no. <laughs> don't ask. As a creator, I know that at some point in the next ten years, she is going to burn and ache and need to come back to this world. And she's going to have to work out, do I do it? And she's probably been asking herself that same thing for years now, before this had even finished. And she will wake up in the morning with the same answer, which is no. And then occasionally she will wake up and decide yes, and she will play with it. And maybe we'll get more. What I do know is that from what I've just read to you about the, um, at the very beginning, that the history of, uh, of, of the, the world of magic before Harry Potter turned up on the scene, uh, there is enough material there for movies, if nothing else. Yeah. And we already know that they can do the films very, very well. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that with the tales of Beedle the Bard, Pottermore, which has been a project of, of Joe's, recently with the Harry Potter experience in Universal Studios also with the sort of long rumoured encyclopedia she is f finding every way she can 
to scratch that itch without writing a book. But yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> she's going to find it very tough, especially given she's set up the fact that Draco's son and Harry's two sons and Ron and Hermione's daughter are all at Hogwarts with you know f- further further siblings to come. There's a there's a lot of room there for an Albus Severus and the widget of what's it series to start coming out. So see, unlike the Star Wars prequels, where if things were hinted at and then had to be fleshed out and then were given horrible stringy rotten flesh over a rancid <laughs> skeleton, she's pretty much told us everything we need to know. All that's really lack about the key events. All that's really lacking from the story of what happened when the Marauders at school is the characterization and the whys and the wherefores and the bits in between. She'd be hampered by the fact that she would have to go to these various different events and certain things would have to happen. However, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't make a fantastic series of films. Maybe three films rather than seven because it takes place over a, a longer uh, period than... Um, it's, it's over like 11 years all told. And she can go... You can go back and forwards, and ultimately, it needs to be done in a slightly more grown-up way. But ultimately, that story, you are hampered by what has to happen. Yeah, and the question... There's more freedom in the future. The question becomes, the books relied on this more than the films did, but the books relied on a sense of mystery for everyone. There was a, That's the there was thing. a big yeah. mystery and, and twists and turns on the way. And if you know everything... If you know everything, what's the mystery? What's the compelling reason? So I think if, if George try and write the books of those, I think there would be a disconnect there. It might be easier just to start with something fresh that's further yeah. on in the timeline. But films, absolutely, because there's a lot known there. And, and the films were made on the basis of a lot of the people watching them. The mystery wasn't there. They knew what was going to happen and still enjoyed them nonetheless. So yeah. films might be uh, a better bet for filling in the blanks in the past in the universe. It's very viable. And when The Hobbit makes bajillions of pounds, which it will... Yeah. It will be mooted at some point to Joe. You know what? We can get Steve Clovis, who knows Harry Potter better than almost any screenwriter imaginable, uh, to just sit down, write a few treatments out for a three-part arc that basically covers them from the age of 11 to the age of 21. Tolkien wrote about Middle-earth till the day he died. His son had to finish the Silmarillion. I wouldn't be able to leave it. When you create a world that's that rich, you never leave it. I'm amazed that C.S. Lewis was able to call it a day at the end of the last battle and go, right, that's Narnia done. The trick, presumably, is to find a way of doing it that doesn't impinge on what you've already done. So Tolkien's style of, you know, once Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were done, it was telling other tales in Middle-earth that were tangentially related but not directly related, as far as I've read, which isn't extensively by any means. Um... And so maybe the way to do it is to look either to the past and have a completely unrelated uh, or tangentially related set of books or to go to the future where it's as yet unwritten. You know, there's nothing laid down as to what's going to happen from that 19 years on point forward. Yeah, there's so much freedom at that point because Hogwarts is still clearly brimming with secrets. But then the history, she spent seven books... Make, yeah. uh, getting us to understand a huge amount of history again, not so many cubby holes to hide secrets so it would, there would have to be almost a different style of book it wouldn't be able to have the same yeah. exact Potter narrative and because also each book we were finding out about the wizarding world to the point where by, by six we were pretty much knew what decoy detonators were yeah, and, and everything else. Yeah, and I suppose the, the superficial changes to Hogwarts and its rebuilding 
yeah. and what's happened in the 19 years since will provide a certain amount of fodder that can be filled in, um, but it's not going to provide the same as the, the nigh-on thousand years of wizarding history that was touched on and filled in and, and created as those books went on originally. It's just not going to be able to stand up to that, I don't think. And she's going to have to come up with character. I mean, there are hundreds of characters in these books. Yeah. And she'd have to come up with more and more and more and outdo herself. So I think ultimately, if she's going to do more, then small might be an idea. Rather than trying to make it just this ongoing epic, maybe Tales books. Just fleshing it out for us. Rather than trying to have a cohesive multi-book narrative. Mm doesn't mean we can't find out about all of these adventures that Potter and his friend's kids get up to. A couple of things that we hadn't mentioned along the way. It's a short list now. Uh, in film five, The Weatherman uh, on the Dursley's TV is Stephen Fry. Tiny little cameo. <laughs> I wonder yeah. that. I was like, hey, is that him? Oh, I guess it's not. It's totally him. In that same film, Order of the Phoenix, there's a point where Harry uh, is despairing on the bridge and uh, says that there's uh, no point in caring anymore. The more you care, the more you have to lose. It's the antithesis of what he realizes at the end, which is that he's got so much to lose because he has so much in the way of rich friendship and love in his life. And that part stabbed at my heart when I saw it in the cinema um, because I, I felt despair like that myself in the past, that this notion that the more I commit myself to something which isn't working, the more time I'm wasting and the more I have to lose and the more disappointment I have to reap. This was the uh, film where I really started to identify with Harry. Um, in film three, I can't believe we never mentioned it before, Hermione punches Draco. I can't believe they're going to kill Buckbeak. It's just too horrible. It just got worse. I tell you. Look who's here. Ah, come to see the show. You, you foul, loathsome, them evil little cockroach. Hermione, no. He's not worth it. Malfoy, you okay? Let's go. Quick. That felt good. Not good. Brilliant. Wonderful little moment. Uh, little mathematics thing I worked out. Barty Crouch Jr. staying at Hogwarts from October 94 through to May 95 in disguise for 12 hours plus a day and locked in his room at night so he wouldn't have to be in disguise would have needed over 3,000 doses of polyjuice potion replenished hourly. There aren't enough boom slang skins and lacewing flies in the world. So I wanted to take her back to her old flat in Leith, where she finished the very first Harry Potter book, and find out what her life had been like then. This is the first time she's been back. Did you write in here? Mm-hmm. This is really the room. Well, I finished Philosopher's Stone here. This is really where I turned my life around. Completely. I mean, my, my life changed so much in this flat. I 
feel I really became myself here, in that everything was stripped away. I've made such a mess of things. But that was all, that was freeing. So I just thought, well, I want to write. So I wrote the book. And what, what, what is the worst that can happen? It gets turned down by every publisher in Britain, big deal. So, you know, it's really back to the whole time here. Oh, look, Harry Potter books. Now, that is really freaky. And for years now, I felt like if it all disappeared, and some days I do feel like, is it real? Then this is where I would come back to, you know, this would be my baseline, I'd be back in Leith. And obviously, if I'd known that 10 years, well, was it yeah, 10 years on, I'd come back here with a film crew, <laughs> and there would be my published books in someone else's bookcase in this room. I mean, it's really incredible to me. It really did, I mean, yes. Because it's such a well-worn part of my story now, it's a big yawn to hear how I wrote it, as though it was all some sort of publicity stunt I did for a year. But it was my life. And it was very hard. And I didn't know there was going to be this fairy tale resolution. And I didn't coming back here is just full of ghosts. Before we finish this final epic podcast, ladies and gentlemen, please plug your shows. Leah Haydu, who has been with us for almost every show in this whole series, you first. Uh, you can find me at GamerDork, which is GamerDork.net, and also occasionally on Gonzo Planet. Sharon, who has been with us for all of them. I have a few pieces of work on Gonzo Planet, hopefully more in the future. James? Um, you can find me on CanandRinse.com, where I am podcasting and writing about uh, games of all, all types. Uh, thank you very much for having me on these shows. It's been uh, real fun. It has. Jake. You can find me on the Last Save Loaded podcast, which is a fortnightly-ish gaming podcast, and I'm also a member of the Gonzo Planet community. And there's Squeezy Cheesy P. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel. I run and voice a show called Extra Credits on Penny Arcade TV, which uh, new episodes are up every Wednesday. We talk about game industry, ga- uh, games kind of in an academic way. Do I still sound like a robot, by the way? A dependable, ethical, hard-working, do-not-call-them-boring Hufflepuff rounding off the Horcrux trilogy, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits returns. Hey, our friends think cool. Hang on, say that one more time, you went all Cylon. Okay. Hey, our friends think we're cool. Still a bit Cylon? One more uh, time? Come on. All right, as it's... Let me know when it's sounding a little better. Is it still shit? <laughs> every, by the way, every time that it sounded bad last week and I made everyone do it again, it, it, it was worth it because the first take was always unusable. So oh, sure. It's and worth so the wait, these guys. Um, still sounding... Actually, not too bad. Okay, so yeah. Better? Snappy okay. comeback. One minute late. <laughs> <Go>. <laughs> okay. Hey, our friends think we're cool.
That was still a bit silent. Are you kidding me? Sky doesn't like this line. Okay, let's say the best. Enunciate every word. Our friends think we're. Are you kidding me? Come on! All right, I need to find a different line. You are totally not cool. You'd have a Hufflepuff. I will clearly. Okay, sorry. Still Cylon. Just try. Uh, I'm just going to keep on talking, and you tell me when to say go, and then I'll suddenly start saying that. Hey, our friends think we're cool. Yay! Yay! All right. (laughs) When were you happiest? Um, hospital, um, for the birth of each of my children, and Venice last year with Neil. What's your biggest regret? That I didn't keep my mother on the telephone longer the last time I spoke to her. What do you still want to achieve? I want to get better. Do you ever feel you just got lucky? Having the idea was lucky. Do you ever feel a fraud? Less as I get older, but I have done. What keeps you going? I'm a born trier. Why do you still write? Because I love it and I need it. How would you like to be remembered? As someone who did the best she could with the talent she had. Yeah, the music for these last two films is uh, Alexandre Desplat, who um, is a French composer. He did the music for The Golden Compass, which uh, is actually fairly accomplished. At times he sounds like he's aping John Williams a little too much in that film specifically. There's a bit which sounds exactly like E.T., and there's a bit that sounds exactly like Jurassic Park. Which makes him maybe not the worst uh, idea in the world for, for these last two when it's trying to bring it all home again. But he's capable of some incredibly subtle moments. And like Nicholas Hooper, a lot of it's background, a lot of it's mood building. But then there are some fantastic, epic, orchestral themes in there as well, which I, you'll have heard throughout the, the last two podcasts. And, and I, I really like the fact that he, he also stepped back at the very end and said, no, you know what, Let, let's give this back to Williams and we will play the very final music from the uh, from the first film and bring it full circle. And it's, it's also the, the only film that doesn't end on Hogwarts itself. It ends on the Hogwarts Express and the promise of more adventure. It's a wonderful circle of life moment. As for the, the, the final epilogues, I think they got the spirit of the epilogue in very well. Before the final films were being made, I was speculating for ages with Sharon on which actors could play the older versions, which is a total Chronicles of Narnia idea. It just never occurred to me. Well, just back to the future it. Mm. Get, just give them love handles and a big flabby face. and t- they, they went a bit over the top, actually. They make them look like wrecks of their former <laughs> self. They're only supposed to be in their mid to late 30s. They look like they've had a, a rough time since. <laughs> yeah. It's all encapsulated in... Uh, just after he uh, talks to uh, Albus, um, Harry hugs his son, and it's this wonderful hug that a father and son can get to where it's like all of this sort of mother-son thing that's been going throughout the series for him it's acknowledging the father-son relationship there as well and it's it's that Harry who has Harry who has sought the father his entire life becomes the father
Do you like Snape? No. Why not? He's cross. And he's not happy. No, he's not. He's it's Tom Riddle. Two faces on their head. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was Voldemort. Yeah. Well done. I don't like Peter Pettigrew. Neither do I. He was a liar and a murderer. Hedwig. It is Hedwig. And you can't go outside with a letter. But big. I said, That time turn is fantastic, Hermione. You should keep it forever. All right. No, really. It's too valuable. You have to promise to keep it. Okay, I promise. Hermione, something might conveniently destroy all the time turners, making that the last one. You've got to keep it. I promise I won't get rid of it. I'm going to kill you, Harry Potter. I'm pointing my wand as hard as I can. What is it going to take, Tom? You tried to kill me once as a baby and it didn't work. I'm going to destroy you. We've beaten you like four or five times already, and I just came back from the dead. La 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 la, I'm not listening. Too busy about to kill you. You are insane. And now we're about to kill your pet snake. Come on, It's over. It's never over. Nobody can take Ah. Muggle weapons. Professor Snape, you're alive! Of course I'm alive, you twit. But how? You died right in front of us! Magic? Duh. I'm a potions master and a double agent. Obviously I had a backup plan. I've been drinking honey badger anti-venom ever since I started hanging around that ridiculous snake. Whoa. Honey badger just takes what it wants. And I think we've already established that I can heal bleeding injuries. Now, Mr. Potter, if you will bring me your invisibility cloak and Miss Granger's time-turner, there is one more thing I must do. Professor, you realize if you do this, you can't come back. I am well aware of the risk and consequence, Miss Granger. You're going to have to turn that thing at least 200,000 times, sir. Then you best not make me lose count, eh, Mr. Weasley? No, sir. Good luck, sir. Goodbye, children. One, two, three, four. Two hundred sixty-two thousand twenty-nine. Two hundred sixty-two thousand thirty. Two hundred sixty-two thousand thirty-one. Got it. Got it. I can make animals do what I want without training them. I can make bad things happen to people if I want. I can make. What the? What the? <laughs> what is this? Take that, you dark lord. <laughs> Why would you do that? Evidence removal. <laughs> who, who are you? Oh, sorry about that. Just, uh, saving your life in the future. And rather than just recite his final words, I'm going to leave the end here to the wonderful Daniel Radcliffe. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter podcast. We will see you soon. Dad. What if I am put in Slytherin? Albus Severus Potter. You were named after two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was 
the bravest man I've ever known. Would you say that I am? Then Slytherin House will have gained a wonderful young wizard. But listen, if it really means that much to you, you can choose Gryffindor. The Sorting Hat takes your choice into account. Really? Really. Ready? Ready.